Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of E-Radio. I still haven't called in my uh, panelists just yet, but uh, today we're going to be reading from the chapter uh, 13 and 15 from uh, The Best That Money Can't Buy. I'm sorry, not 13, 15, 15 and 16 from The Best That Money Can't Buy. Let me uh, call on my listeners. I was trying to re-simulcast this onto uh, Justin TV, but I was not able to get that in time, so I apologize to those users. Um, if you will give me just a moment, I will be right back after I get everything set up. Okay, had to turn that other broadcast off. I once again apologize to everybody who's listening. I'm going to call in everybody else now who's supposed to be on this call. And uh, I was only able to get two panelists today. Uh, we will be having Chibi, who was with me on my uh, Journey to the Venus project here recently. And uh, Dark Dancer will be returning from the Netherlands. So give me just a moment. And I will get them on and we'll be good to go. All right, let's get everybody in here. They are ringing. As soon as they pick up, we'll be good to go. Hey, Chibi. Hey. Just waiting on Dark Dancer to answer his phone. <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm still on dance phase. You might want to log out of that. Are you getting any feedback? Yes. Anytime you have another voice chat program running, it'll give you problems on Blog Talk. All right, hold on. I want to be able to tell him goodbye. Okay. All right. Um, Dark Dancer's not answering his phone. So, anyway. Okay. I left in trouble. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we're on live now. Um, I was hoping that Dark Dancer would answer his phone in time, but that's all right. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about actually was uh, um, just like what our trip to Venus was like and uh, what we thought of that and how it impacted our opinions on the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project. Um, so bearing that in mind, uh, Chibi, if you want to first of all introduce yourself so they know who you are. Uh, yeah, um, my name, well, I, I go by Chibi, obviously, and uh, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri area. And uh, I, I mean, what else do you want to know? <laughs> well, that's basically it. Uh, other than what I usually ask people when they first come onto the show is how did you discover the Zeitgeist movement? Well, that's a long story. Uh, you know, well, we certainly have time. Go ahead. 
<laughs> it was basically through World of Warcraft the first. I mean, I seen Loose Change randomly. I don't even remember how. And then the first Zeitgeist came out, and uh, a friend on World of Warcraft told me about it. And so obviously, I was uh, looking forward to the second one. It came out, found out about Fresco, researched that, and, and here we are. So that's pretty much it. What were your political views before you discovered Zeitgeist? Well, I was definitely anti-establishment for as long as I can remember. I never liked the idea of money and working and making a living. Um, but I didn't necessarily have a political view overall. I mean, I, I guess I would have been a libertarian, but uh, I never really got into politics. I, I always disliked the idea of politics. Okay. Well, I understand where you're coming from there, for sure. Um, for me, personally, it was the uh, Ron Paul thing was where I started off, and then uh, I developed from there. Um, but basically, um, they're stretching the meeting. Uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> I hope they have uh, have fun over there. But... <laughs> um, my situation was I started off with the Ron Paul thing just because it was the first time I had seen a politician who wasn't, like, keeping with the mold. And um, in addition to that, I became involved in a bunch of other projects that people who have been listening to the show already here. So. Um, but uh, that was the basics for me. Um, i see if, like, yeah, okay, all the calls are still going. I take it you muted yourself, Chibi, because you're much quieter. <laughs> But, uh, anyway. Yeah, I, I did mute myself for a moment. Okay. All right, well, um, I'm going to go ahead and start us with Chapter 15, then. And uh, it's called Cities That Think. Um, you can want to go ahead and mute yourself again. You sure can. Uh, and we will get to reading and then analyzing. So... Chapter 15, Cities That Think, Architecture in an Emerging Culture. We recommend that architecture also be redefined to fit the needs of an emerging future. The questions we should concern ourselves with are, what ends are these new cities to serve? And, what are the prime considerations in designing a place of residence? In simplified form, a home is any enclosure that protects people from varying weather conditions and provides for most of the occupant's primary needs, a place to rest, sleep, work, and carry out the business of ordinary living. We presently think of a shelter or dwelling as a suitable structure fabricated of wood, steel, concrete, and glass, or a combination of materials. We envision a structure with windows for light and exterior walls for privacy. We install bathrooms for sanitary purposes. We utilize electricity for heating, air conditioning, and so forth. Our notions about a home generally reflect these limited concepts. Historically, dwellings took many forms. People sought shelter from the weather in caves. Others used wigwams, lean-tos, and floating habitats. All manner of materials were utilized, including bamboo, clay, the sides of cliffs and hills, domes of ice, and countless others. Today, people are seriously considering colonizing the sea and outer space. Since shelters take so many forms, we have to broaden our concept of shelters. Although one does not ordinarily think of a living suit as a, shel a, living suit as a shelter, it protects the wearer from the immediate surroundings, that is, from the hostile element of the sea. A spacesuit provides similar protection. Such suit, suits enable people to function in environments that do not ordinarily support life. 
From body enclosures to single dwellings, multiple dwellings, and eventually to total enclosure systems in which an entire city works together as a single organism, this could be the evolution of shelters. In times to come, people may be shielded from the effects of weather by electronic means. The furnishings of future dwellings may consist of totally different configurations that automatically adjust to our body contours. Newer technologies may render walls transparent so that occupants can view the surrounding landscape without anyone on the outside being able to see in. Daylight would be softened and subdued according to the preference of the occupants. These buildings could provide a barrier to sound, insects, and dust, and also maintain a desired internal temperature. The telephone of the future might not have the appearance we are familiar with. It may be entirely invisible and a component part of the interior structure. It may focus sound to the location of your ear by electronic means. The building's materials may be energy generating and control the surrounding climate. If we look upon such a dwelling with our present habits of thought, it appears unfamiliar and very different from what we are accustomed to. It may even appear surreal to some. It is not that this new residence does not resemble a home as one knows it, but it is foreign to our concept of what a home ought to be as we understand it. We conceive of homes within these restrictions of our habits and thought and indoctrination. In times to come, definitions of things in the physical world will not be restricted to appearance only, but will include the functions they serve as well. While some advocate modifying existing cities and spend lots of time and resources attempting to update them, we find such attempts inadequate. Modification carries a large price in dollars and sustaining resources. Modifying and building onto what we have means supporting older infrastructure and energy needs, the high cost of operation and maintenance thereof, the overall inefficiency, and the detrimental effects on the occupants. It is less expensive to build newer cities from the ground up than to restore and maintain old ones, just that it is more efficient and less costly to design a flexible state-of-the-art production method than to upgrade an obsolete factory. To end pollution and waste and still keep parks, playgrounds, art and music centers, schools, and healthcare for all without a price tag, profound changes are required in the way we plan cities and conduct human affairs. The innovative, multi-dimensional, and circular cities we propose use the most sophisticated resources and construction techniques. The geometrically elegant circular arrangement, surrounded by parks and gardens, is designed to operate with a minimum expenditure of energy in order to obtain the highest possible standard of living for everyone. The city would use the best clean energy or clean technology in harmony with the local ecology. The design and development of these new cities emphasize the restoration and protection of the environment. In our view, technology without human concern is meaningless. In a resource-based economy, the circular arrangement employs a systems approach. Efficiently applying resources with energy conservation, ease of fabrication, and relative freedom from maintenance. Assembling entire cities with standardized basic structural systems, prefabricated and automated plants, and often assembled on site, is the most feasible way to provide a high standard of living for all within the shortest possible time. This method permits flexibility in design and takes advantage of interchangeable units. Cities would have a new and different appearance would have new and different appearances depending on their function. Each would be unique. This approach does not reduce people to a subsistence level. Rather, it makes available all the amenities that modern science and technology can provide. Even the wealthiest people of today could not achieve a standard of living equal to that of a resource-based economy.
Prefab modular units would converge on a building site to facilitate automatic assembly. The electronics could be an integral part of the modular components, each one easily connected to existing power supplies if the buildings are not already entirely self-generating. Construction would be pre-scheduled to minimize interference with ongoing traffic. The geometry, external appearances, and total configuration of tomorrow's cities would be a direct expression of the, of the functions they are designed to serve. The city is an extension of human activity in complete harmony with the surrounding environment. These new cities would serve as universities. Each would be designed to carry out specific integrated functions and yet be flexible enough to permit changes for new and innovative installations. The size of the cities would vary depending on their geographical location and use. In planning new cities, computers would help determine parameters based on the most appropriate design to meet human and environmental needs. These design environments could permit the widest possible range of individuality and creativity for the inhabitants. We are often asked, who will direct and program the cybernated city system? No one will. The major difference between today's computer technology and the system we recommend is that our system extends an automatic nervous system. I'm sorry, autonomic nervous system meaning environmental sensors, into all areas of the social complex. They would coordinate a balance between production and distribution and operate a balanced load economy. Decisions are made on the basis of feedback from the environment. For example, in the agricultural belt, electronic probes embedded in the soil automatically inventory the water table, soil conditions, nutrients, etc., and act appropriately without the need for human intervention as conditions change. This method of industrial electronic feedback could be applied to the entire system. Another difference we propose is reworking the concept that drive our production planning. Instead of large in-house facilities that create standardized products with limited application, we propose production during the act of delivery. For example, transportation modules for ships, trains, and planes could process time-sensitive products like fish and vegetables while en route. Building materials that retain an element of fluidity would lead to the creation of indestructible houses, music centers, art centers, and multi-purpose buildings in a variety of shapes and sizes. The new city would provide a total environment with clean air and water, health care, good nutrition, access to information and education for all. The city would have art and music centers, fully equipped machine shops, science labs, hobby and sports areas, and manufacturing districts. These new cities could also provide recreation within a short distance of the residential district. This technology is inevitable. Waste recycling, renewable and clean power generating systems, and other services would be managed by integrated cybernated methods. Lifestyles and personal preferences are totally selected by the individual. Some of the cities would be circular, while others may be linear, underground, or constructed as floating cities in the sea. Cables and satellite positioning could prevent drifting for seaborne cities. Eventually, many cities may be designed as total enclosure systems, much like a cruise ship outfitted for a six-month cruise. They would contain residences, theaters, parks, recreation, entertainment centers, health care, educational facilities, and all the requirements of a total living environment. Everything built in these cities would be as near a self-contained system as conditions allow. In northern locations, some could be partially underground. Underground or subterranean cities of the future could be total enclosure dome systems. One purpose of the first subterranean megacity might be to research the possibilities of sustaining life forms on inhospitable planets. 
Many underground cities could be built in hidden hospitable regions of our planet. They can provide an ideal climate year-round with lush gardens and waterfalls. In other words, they can supply all the benefits of a subtropical environment and a very cold one. Some of these cities would be self-sustaining and possibly use energy from geothermal sources. The future will discover newer materials and methods, resulting in different expressions of structure, form, and function, consistent with an evolving and changing world. The new materials will probably serve multiple purposes. They could be lightweight, high strength, and low maintenance with, an acoustical, pro with acoustical properties not found in today's structures. These newer materials might combine all of these factors as a part of the structural components. Some new structural materials may be sandwich-like and semi-flexible with an inner foam core and a glazed ceramic outer surface, permitting expansion and contraction without fracture. They will require no maintenance. Their thin shell construction can be mass-produced in a matter of hours. With this type of construction, there would be minimal damage from earthquakes, hurricanes, termites, and fires. Windows could electronically shade or darken external illumination and come equipped with computer-controlled automatic cleaning systems that require no human labor. Combining innovative technologies makes it possible to conserve resources for lesser developed regions without sacrificing any of the conveniences of advanced living. It is only through applying innovation that our goal of, high of a high standard of living for the entire human race can be achieved. We have no shortage of material. The misuse and waste of resources by our money-oriented society creates artificial scarcity. When we see a city as a biome that, that grows and adapts, requiring energy, food, and water, disposal systems, and arteries for transportation of goods and people, our ideas of space and permanency change dramatically. Our present haphazard growth, haphazard growth patterns reflect available space and access rather than cohesive planning. Joining the city elements together in a predetermined way conserves energy and provides easy access to all portions of the city. The prefabricated elements that comprise the city would be designed to permit modification as needed. With the introduction of newer materials, the city design can be continuously updated while taking into consideration new technological and structural progress and evolving human patterns. All systems would be of an emergent nature and constructed to allow the maximum latitude and accommodating change. This could permit the city to function as an evolving integrated organism rather than a static structure. Industrial construction could be automated through the use of continuous frame structures of metal, glass, plastic, and reinforced pre-stressed lightweight concrete. These would probably be selected as universal units for constructing factories, educational facilities, harbor systems, etc. Mega machines could construct entire buildings using computerized pre-programmed instructions, reducing construction time considerably. This programming could be readily altered to fit changing conditions. The architecture and individual dwellings of the future will evolve in a completely different manner from today's structures. With the intelligent application of humane technologies, we could provide a wide range of unique individual homes. Structural elements would be flexible and coherent, coherently arranged to best serve each individual. These prefabricated modular homes embodying a degree of flexibility inconceivable in times past could be built in any place one might imagine, such as forests, atop mountains, or even on remote islands. These dwellings can be designed as self-contained residences with thermal generators, heat con concentrators, and photovoltaic arrays built into the skin of the building. Thermal panes can tint out bright sunlight with variable patterns of shading. These features can be selected by the occupant, and they can supply more than enough of the energy required to operate the entire household. 
Buildings may also contain a precise combination of dissimilar metals utilizing the thermocouple effect for heating and cooling, as well as other materials embedded in solid-state plastic or ceramic structural materials. The warmer it gets on the outside, the cooler it becomes on the inside. The application of this principle can heat or cool the buildings. The interiors of homes would be designed to suit the preferences of individuals. Transportation. In the new cybernated cities of the future, personal travel to distant locations may be less attractive because of the, way interesting, or the, because of the many interesting events, options, and activities immediately available near home. When travel outside the city is desired or necessary, computer-guided vehicles for land, sea, air, space, and beyond could transport passengers and freight. With the adoption of integrated transport systems, passengers and freight could, would be moved with a minimal expenditure of energy. For rapid movement of passengers on land across viaducts, bridges, and tunnels, high-speed maglev trains would, could span great distances and replace most aircraft transportation. Some of the passenger compartments in the transport units can be lifted for the moving train while in transit, eliminating waiting time at stations. Rail, sea, and undersea craft could handle most of, freight, of the freight. Many of the transport units could have detachable components and contain inter internationally standardized containers, which could be easily transferred. In the cities, escalators and elevators, as well as conveyors and transveyors, move in all move in all directions and are interconnected with all other transport systems. A circular route around the outer perimeter would connect any, could connect conveyor systems to radial and vertical extensions, making it possible to travel to any part of the city quickly. Future cities can be designed to accommodate all transport systems for the convenience of passengers and freight alike. Smaller transportation units for people could be operated by voice control. When voice control is not practical or possible, alternative methods such as keypads could be used. Transportation systems would be modular, continuously updated, and provided with the latest developments in technology. The transportation system within the cybernated cities of tomorrow extends to homes as well. Although goods and services would be readily available in the city center, people could, if they chose, access materials and information from their places of residence. Conspicuous waste. If our civilization is to endure, it must outgrow conspicuous waste, including the waste of time, effort, and natural resources. This may be seen in any number of areas. At one time, architectural adornments were an integral part of construction. The lofty columns and col colonnaded port porticios I'm sorry, of ancient Greece and Rome were necessary components of their structures. With the advent of newer lightweight materials and engineering improvements, we can now span greater distances without columns or other intervening support structures. Yet the designers of many of our government buildings, including the Capitol in Washington, D.C., engage in the conscious withdrawal of efficiency in favor of designs felt to be impressive, which would actually reflect more convention and artificiality. Designing a building with many projections of artificiality does not indicate originality, creativity, or individuality. Individuality is expressed in our own unique way of thinking about ourselves and the world around us, not in our external appearance. Designing buildings with conspicuous waste and decoration lessens the standard of living for others. This is not to detract from the beautiful structures created in the past with the available and limited technology of the times. However, the continuing use of ancient methods of construction retards the innovative and creative thinking necessary in an emergent culture. The intelligent use of resources incorporated in structures will considerably simplify our, our lifestyle and reduce waste and maintenance. These new cities will provide the needs of the inhabitants through the efficient allocation of resources and materials in an energy-conscious and pollution-free environment. 
In human systems, evolution has disturbed, many, has disturbed eyes, senses, and internal organs in a fairly uniform manner. The same is true for other plant and animal species. Uniformity is not necessarily a bad thing if it functions towards a, set, functions towards a satisfactory end. The dangers of uniformity are evident in our inability to shrug off useless values or methods which have outgrown their usefulness. Perhaps only, the only uniformity acceptable in the future will be the protection of the environment and concern for our fellow human beings. We have to ask ourselves what kind of world we want to live in. The choice and responsibility are ours. Holistic considerations in a resource-based economy. In a resource-based economy, holistic considerations are an integral part of overall planning. A careful investigation of the positive and negative effects of each project must be scientifically analyzed before any project is undertaken. The cities we propose offer the possibility of tremendous intellectual growth with an emphasis on environmental and human concern. These cities would be free of noise, pollution, most crime, and other deleterious conditions associated with cities of today. Of course, people will be free to live wherever they choose, but these cities are planned with plenty of open country, parks, and wooded areas. In the areas for individual housing, there will be enough vegetation and trees between houses to impart a sense of privacy. At first glance, our proposal for a city of the future may appear impractical, yet it represents an achievable, sustainable, and sophisticated environment that is designed to bring the best in human potential. These cities will not only provide resources and information, but will be university cities of continuous growth designed to encourage individuality, creativity, and cooperation with concern for the total person. The transition to the social arrangement will not be an easy one. Never in human history has there been a smooth transition from one social system to another. Any major change in, engenders resistance. The most effective way to implement, cha I'm sorry, implement change is through the use of worldwide media, seminars, and workshops during the initial design stage. In the final analysis, talk proves little. Since all new cities go through a process of maturation and development, we expect our experimental city of the future to gradually gain acceptance by fulfilling its promise as a successful, peaceful, and desirable place to live. As newer communities develop and become widely accepted, they will provide the basis of a new society through a process of evolution rather than revolution. Now it's like actually got some illustrations, but uh, the outer basically goes to the circular city, which is like the often seen like picture of the green city, basically with the circles. The outer perimeter will be part of the recreational area with golf courses, hiking and biking trails, and opportunities for water sports. A waterway surrounds the agricultural belt with its enclosed transparent buildings. The application of newer technologies will eliminate, once and for all, the use of dangerous chemicals and pesticides. Continuing into the city center, the eight green sectors provide clean, renewable sources of energy with wind, thermal, and solar energy devices. The residential belt features beautiful landscaping, lakes, and winding streams. The homes and apartments will be gracefully contoured to blend in with the landscape. A wide range of innovative architecture will provide many choices for the occupants. Adjacent to the residential district, a wide selection of healthy, organically grown food will be available on a 24-hour basis, next to the apartments and design centers which surrounds the central dome. Eight domes house the science, art, music, research, exhibition, entertainment, and conference centers which are all fully equipped and available to everyone. The Central Dome, or Theme Center, houses the cybernated system, educational facilities, health center, and facilities for shopping, communications, networking, and childcare. 
In addition, it serves as the core for most transportation services, which will take the form of horizontal, vertical, radial, and circular conveyors and safely move passengers anywhere within the city. This system facilitates efficient transportation for city residents, eliminating the need for automobiles. City-to-city -city transportation would be provided by monorail and electrically operated vehicles. Cybernated Complex. Cybernated, sorry. This cybernated complex utilizes advanced imaging technology to protect a 3D virtual image of the Earth in real time. It utilizes satellite communication systems to provide information on worldwide weather conditions, ocean currents, resource inventories, population, agricultural conditions, and fish and animal migration patterns. The interconnected cybernated complex represent the brain and nervous system of the entire world civilization. All of this information will be available on demand to everyone via the Internet. This single site manages our common heritage, the resources, carrying capacity, and health of our Earth. University City. This University of Architecture and Environmental Studies, or World University, is a testing ground for each phase of architectural development. This would be a living, continually evolving research institute open to all. Student performance would be based on competence accreditation and research findings would be applied directly to the social structure to benefit all of humanity. People will live in these experimental cities and provide feedback on the livability and serviceability of the various structures. This information would be used to formulate modifications to structures so that maximum efficiency, comfort, and safety are assured. This facility is also used to develop modular construction systems and components that serve a wide range of needs and preferences. In most instances, the external, the external appearance of the buildings will reflect the function of the building they are designed from the inside out. Mile High Skyscrapers. These skyscrapers are constructed of carbon fiber reinforced with and pre-stressed concrete. They will be stabilized against earthquakes and high winds by three massive elongated tapered columns which are 100 feet wide and almost a mile high. This tripod-like structure is reinforced to diminish compression, tension, and torsion, torsion stresses. These super-sized skyscrapers assure that more land will be available for parks and wilderness preserves while, con while concurrently helping to eliminate urban sprawl. Each one of these towers encloses a complete environment containing a shopping center as well as childcare, educational, health, and recreational facilities. This will help alleviate the need to travel to outside facilities. Although the author, author is not in favor of mile-high skyscrapers, if we do not maintain a balance between the population and the Earth's carrying capacity, we may have to move our cities not only skyward and seaward, but beneath the Earth as well. There's a Center for Dialogue. The directive of the Center for Dialogue would be to submit the urgent issues of the times to critical examination and to raise relevant questions for informed public dialogue. I remember seeing more about this actually in one of the videos I listened to and basically it's got like a 3D image and everybody gets to sit down in like this stadium-like seating and you have everybody has computers in front of them and they can all like openly discuss their, their feelings on what needs to be solved and like, you know, as they describe it, there's a 3D model of like imager that helps you describe whatever it is that you are trying to describe. Um, goes into building of dome structures. These elegant, uh, just shows pictures. These elegant bridges are designed to carry compression, tension, and torsion loads. The simplified expression of its structural members. Maglev trains are suspended beneath the enclosed traffic lanes. Um, sounds like you're not muted anymore, Chibi. 
Yeah, I, I was following along with you. It, it's hard to really get this. I mean, if you don't buy the book or get the book, it's it's hard to follow these next few pages. It's really breathtaking pictures, though. Yeah, I know. I think I'm just going to go ahead and push through this, you know, but there's plenty of information available on this. But um, one of the things I had forgot to do, actually, really previously, was I originally wanted to start this show with talking about our visit to Venus. But um, let's go ahead and comment on what we have here first with, uh, with the chapter that we just brought in. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. Um, what feelings did you have about this chapter? Obviously, it just kind of describes the city systems. You're muted again, Chibi. Yeah, hold on a second. <laughs> it sounds like your cat wants to talk about the city's integrated systems. All right, sorry. Yeah, got it cat that's in heat. Anyways, um, <laughs> well, as far as you want to comment on the, the entire chapter, really? Yeah, basically. Um, because, I mean, this whole thing is about architecture, and I mean, once you've been to Venus, which you know, mm -hmm. uh, you get to see, like, the domes and everything, and I know one thing that came up a long time ago when we first started talking about this was the dome structure and you know, is it really that efficient and things like that? Well, how do you get a dresser in there, you know, if the wall's round? And, I mean, just weird little things like that. And one thing that amazed me when, when, I, when I was there that didn't even occur to me is how they built the shelving and everything into the structure, which was really efficient and looked really nice. And uh, you just don't picture that in your mind. When you think of dome and you try and picture what it'll be like, it's, it's so much different when you see what they built and, how innovative they they are with their architecture, and uh, I guess uh, as far as you know, just the way it just shows how we look at things in, in the way that we're able to see them, like based on what you have now. Like you, you look around your house and you have like a bookshelf and an entertainment center, all these square things that fit in a square building, and people have a hard time looking outside of that frame of reference to see what it would be like in something else. Yeah, I definitely, um, I, you know, when looking at especially the way that Venus was set up, you know, the, the way that the structures were set up too, you know, it just, I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe really, but, you know, I think when it comes to the city planning, one of the best parts about it is that, you know, when Jacques would talk about how, like, our actual communities are all set up and kind of willy-nilly, like we just sort of put them together and, connect things with roads and it's totally inefficient, you know, and like you absolutely need a car to even exist in this current society because if you don't have one, you can't get to work, you can't get to the store, you can't get anything really. You know, even if you're in a larger um, like uh, community, you know, in many cases it's, it's a real effort to get around to just do the most basic things that you need to live. And this is just not true, you know, in a Venus Project Design City. And when you think about all the various uh, benefits from that, the fact that all, you know, you'll save so much energy, you know, you'll save a lot of effort and you know, time wasted. And, you know, imagine how much time of your life is wasted just sitting in cars. You know, like maybe if you were crazy enough to drive to Florida for some reason, you, know, <laughs> you, you might waste 20, 20 hours of your life in a car. 
I mean, I'm glad that I went. I'm, I'm just poking fun, but it's the same concept. It's just we, we design everything now just sort of haphazardly, and then we wonder why we have traffic problems and pollution problems that are associated with the traffic problems, you know, and all the problems that we have in our economy when any kind of energy is scarce. I mean, it's like in addition to just, you know, the way that energy would be spent in the future will be so different because, you know, we'll be doing things to minimize, basically to minimize our need for energy um, so much. So it's basically just uh, something to consider, really. It's just that, you know, what it really comes down to, I think beyond anything else, is just the absolute most efficient way to do everything. Um, I run into that a lot, actually. It's like, you know, after I'd been exposed to Jacques' way of thinking, it affected my parenting and just how I do things in my regular life. I start to evaluate everything for what is the most practical way for me to approach this? You know, what you know, what about the problems that will arise from X or Y or, you know, Z, basically, you know, like maybe I shouldn't give my son, you know, his cup of water while sitting at this table that has a bunch of stuff on it that will be destroyed by the water when he inevitably spills it. You know, so maybe I should do something to, to change that. So that's just an example, really. Um, you know, it, it ends up affecting so many things. Yeah, it really is holistic. Uh, I, I was thinking the same thing about our trip the whole way down, the, how the transportation system sucks and the tolls and the, and then the bus, of course, you know, the bus rides. I, I run across people at these layovers. You have these layover times in between bus stops where you have to wait an hour or so, and something that should only take like four hours by car is going to take twice that by bus or, you know, like I was on the bus for 12 hours and you got to stop here for an hour, stop here for an hour and and then you meet these other people who have been sitting there for eight hours because they don't even calculate that. They even have computers when they sell the tickets and everything, but they still don't really calculate how many people bought how many tickets for which routes on which buses. So when you go to get on the bus, if you're not in the line, if you're at the middle or back of the line, you get cut off. you got to wait for eight hours to the next bus or four hours or however long it is. And it's so ridiculous the way things are done in this system that they don't, he, they really just don't think, and uh, I, I love that about his, everything he does is so practical in his city design and his social structure and everything. It's, it's all about function, functionality, and, and it's very logical, and it's efficient, and everything about it is amazing. Yeah, I totally agree, and, you know, that's one of the other benefits of everything being in a belt. You know, you go to the agricultural belt, you go to the recreational belt, you go to the well, the educational belt or whatever, you know, just the various different belts of the city, it's really just like walking a street over, you know, to go to somewhere else, you know, to do whatever it else, uh, whatever it is that you need. Um, you know, he also talked about how, you know, eventually he thinks that people will get to the point where they're beyond the need for um, individual housing and they'll probably, you know, move into the apartments that are offered. And, you know, that offers a lot of benefits too because, then everything is centrally located. It's easy for everybody to get to whatever they need to get to. You know, if there's an emergency, it's really easy to get, you know, because you've got to remember, these are communities that are built so close together, you know, like with the ability to get to wherever you need to be. Going to the hospital, like if you're in trouble, could just be a matter of like, you know, maybe walking down the street, depending on how the city is arranged. This sort of city planning that other people talk about is just you know, like in most places just doesn't seem like it's working and when you're talking about inefficiencies in the transportation system, yeah, I, I totally agree. I drove a, I rode a bus all the way to Boulder, Colorado, for the, uh, 
Um, I know, I'm sorry, Denver, Colorado for the Libertarian National Convention, and I will never do that again. Yeah, we only had like the most, at most we had a three-hour layover, but I know what you're talking about. I've, I've seen people that just seem to be sitting there forever, and it doesn't help that Greyhound is pretty much virtually a monopoly, so they're not competing with anybody, and they're basically, you know, taking from the people who have the least amount of money. So they're, they're pretty much, I mean, I, like the bus drivers are always extremely rude, I mean, there were a couple of them that were nice, but it's obvious that they don't really care. I mean, as far as they're concerned, you could just not go wherever you're going. It's like they have all the power in the world to tell you to screw off because, you know, that what are you going to do, not go somewhere? I mean, you're kind of stuck at this bus terminal, so if he tells you to get off the bus, you know, he has all the power and he knows it. And from what I understand, the Greyhound system is not very good at accepting complaints. They don't really do anything about it when you complain. Um but, yeah, overall, I mean, like you said, everything is so much more practical. And that's one of the things that I think it's really hard for people to grasp when we talk about the Venus Project is that we're talking about, you know, a totally different way of approaching the way we use everything, you know, energy, resources, et cetera. You know, and, you know, in commenting on our trip, I have to say I was very happy with, you know, like all the interactions we had while we were there and having a chance to look at Jacques' models and, and listen to him talk about things and, it's definitely all about technology applied for human concern because, like, there's obviously very little human concern in the bus system if you, if you have people sitting around for eight hours. So that's eight hours of their life utterly wasted because Greyhound isn't efficient, and that's just, that's criminal. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I guess that's what, and what you said about them being rude is definitely true. They're, they are very rude if you... You know, when they stop, they don't even tell you how long they're going to be stopped. I mean, most of the bus drivers I had out of one, you know, I was on several different buses, and they don't even say anything. And if you get off the bus, they might just tell you to get back on afterwards, or they might just walk away and not say anything. But what if you had to go to the bathroom and you come back and the bus is gone? They don't care. I mean, they say it very plainly at the start. If you're not on, we leave, you're screwed. And, you know, they don't care because it's a monopoly, like you said. They don't, you know, it's just... They can do whatever they want, and customer complaints don't matter. But um, yeah, they also of, already have your money, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's true. And and they, if you want a non-refundable, uh, if you get a non-refundable ticket and a refundable ticket, it's like twenty dollars difference. So they know everybody's going to buy the non-refundable one. But even, I mean, if you buy that, that means you're screwed. If you if you miss your bus or something happens, you don't get your bus. Then what? You got to buy a new ticket because the next bus driver can say, "No, yours says you leave at this time. Sorry, goodbye." And you know, I mean, they might work with you, but they don't have to. So it's it's kind of messed up, especially when it could be their fault for miscalculating the number of people that bought tickets because they don't even seem to keep track. When I left from St. Louis, um, half the line, literally half the line, was left behind, and I was just lucky that I got there early, so I didn't, you know, I was towards the front of the line. You know, halfway back, they cut it off and said, "Sorry, you you know, you can't go." And that's it. And they just took off. Wow. What does that mean? I wonder how long those people were sitting there. You you talk about the profit motive, you know, and its effect on, you know, everything really. You know, the fact that they were just sitting there like that, you know, just man. I mean, it just it really amounts to all of that. These people just don't care. They get their paychecks and then they take off. It. There's so much about, you see that in everything in our society, and our society is designed in such a way that just makes that worse. You know, it's, they've got their bottom line. They don't, they don't really care about, you know, 
um, how this impacts other people. I mean, I doubt they care about all the other aspects. I mean, I don't pay a lot of attention. I mean, we happen to be using the buses as an example because it's probably one of the most pertinent examples for a total lack of efficiency on the part of the people involved. I mean, like what you're talking about, I would be hopping mad if I bought a ticket for a bus and then they told me, we're sorry, our bus is full. You know, at that point, I, I'm going to own somebody. <laughs> I'm going to, like, walk up to the counter and be like, what are you talking about? I want my money back or I want a discount. You know, that's just yeah, crazy. If, if you went to a used car lot and said, you know, I, I showed up, you showed up, you paid a guy cash, you showed up to pick up the car, and they said, sorry, we sold this to two other people, what would they, you know, it would be fraud. Mm-hmm. But they, they can get away with this because it doesn't, you know, it's like, Monopoly, basically, like you said. Uh, I don't know of any other bus company around here that, that goes everywhere. I mean, but uh, anyways, I mean, yeah, like you said, it, it covers all areas. And uh, as far as, uh, I guess, the topic being architecture, um, I, I I think everyone would agree if they actually see it and they've been there, it's amazing. Um, and what they built in Venus is nothing but what they could afford. And that's something that, some people probably don't think about they they say, oh look some domes in the woods who cares but that's just what they can afford it's not what they really wanted to build and they're still amazing they really mm-hmm. were like seeing it was breathtaking and seeing the inside and how they how they uh, structured everything was just it was really awesome and I was thinking even the bookshelves like I remember looking at his bookshelves they got a lot of books right and you know, here in the information age, the, the age of Internet and all that, I mean, eventually I would assume you would still have original copies for books, but we don't even necessarily need books anymore. I mean, what about just having a, a laptop uh, type, you know, something you open up? If you really wanted to sit down in a chair and have like a book, uh, something similar to a book, you could just have PDF files downloaded to this book-like uh, computer that would just illuminate the page with, with the pager on, you just touch the screen to move, flip to the next page, something like that. And you could just go through every book that way. You wouldn't even need all this space, all this bookshelf space for all these different books. You could just, uh, things like that. That's the kind of thinking that, that he employs in everything. is efficiency, not wasting materials, not wasting resources on extra shit that you don't really need. And it's, it, it can go to all areas. It's really amazing. You know, and the funny thing is, is the technology that you're talking about for storing books already exists. Like a friend of mine, actually, who I you know, I do live action role playing with, he um, he keeps like all kinds of books in PDF format in this little device that's no bigger than a calculator. I mean, it's a really small little like it look. I mean, it looks like a college size calculator, but I mean, it's got a little screen on it and everything, and he can read whatever he wants. It shows the illustrations. You know, it's like basically he has like the equivalent of an entire bookshelf in this little device. You know, and it's not even hooked up to the internet. You can hook it up to the internet, but I mean, it was just amazing technology. You know, and he uses it right now. And I mean, you can use it anywhere as long as you have power. That's the. I mean, that's the only negative. Obviously, you have to power it, but it recharges easily. You know, and so when you know, like you were saying, it's like basically it's that the, that technology already exists to be immensely efficient. So. Um, also, uh, I'm going to be uh, opening up the line to callers. If anybody wants to call in to ask questions or to comment about this chapter that we just read or ask questions of me and Chibi of our recent, conver- uh, recent uh, trip to Venus, uh, you can give us a call at 
I'm sorry, wrong wrong number. Three four seven no nine four five seven seven four seven. You can call in and give us questions about that if you want, or comment on the the chapter of the book that we just read. I go ahead and post this in the chat. I guess some people are saying that they're having trouble with the chat. So, but anyway, Chidi, uh, did you have any further comments? It sounded like you were keying up to say something. Um, not necessarily. I, I mean, just about the trip in general. It, it was definitely worthwhile. Um, you get to see another side of shock that you don't necessarily see in all his interviews. He's, he has a great sense of humor, and he's not as... Uh, some people get the idea, and I don't want to say this in a way that is, uh, you know, offensive or whatever, but some people, when they hear him talk, they say, oh, it's always the same stories, and they think he seems a little senile, and no, he's definitely not. When you meet him, he's very much alive. He's very much, uh, you know, you can converse with him in in all different ways. He's got a great sense of humor, and it it was definitely worth the trip. It was fun to, to meet him, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, I definitely, uh, in particular, that, that guest house, I don't know what it is about that house, but just the way it was set up and, you know, like the bedroom just looks so inviting and comfortable and, um, you know, then it had that kitchen and that living room area. I mean, it was like everything you needed and it was just this little dome. Um, and it, it was really, I mean, it was like a, like a one-bedroom apartment. I, I'm curious how much it costed them to make it. Um, and, you know, I would just love to stay in that dome. It was awesome. Um, and I remember, you know, going to the various other domes with, you know, Jacques models and, and stuff like that. They were all great. And I, I really have to emphasize to the listeners, you know, if you get an opportunity to go see the Venus Project, I strongly advise that you take it because we don't know how much longer it'll be um, there uh, we're going to have it um, because that's actually something that I wanted to bring up. Um, I am in the process right now. Um, well, aside from the fact that, yeah, V-Radio still needs donations, and um, we haven't gotten very many this month. But uh, I'm still in the process right now of getting together what I'm hoping will be a uh, Ron Paul-esque money bomb, which will essentially be for the purpose of trying to save the Venus Project. Uh, the Venus Project is in a lot of financial trouble right now. Uh, it costs a lot of money to, to run that place, and Jacques and Roxanne have basically been doing it out of their own pockets for a long time now. And um, I'm trying to, I'm basically, I'm kind of trying to converse with uh, Peter Joseph about the possibility of sending out you know, a mass email for this purpose. Um, and I'm hoping that it will be successful because we really need to save this place. Um, he, Shaka Roxanne have put so much work into it. I mean, if you can imagine Roxanne laying concrete for those buildings, it's exactly what she did. I mean, I've, I've watched some of the other videos that the Venus Project gave me when I got my package. And, um, you know, they showed, like, the various stages of building those domes, you know. And for as long ago as they were made, they still, I mean, obviously just your typical stuff would happen. Like, obviously they got dirty over time and things like that. But they're still, you know, in my opinion, great to look at. And um, there's just something about also being inside one of those domes. I can't really put my finger on it. But I just, I really liked the way it was shaped. There was something about, you know, the way it felt on the inside that just made it look comfortable to me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Maybe you could comment on that too, Chibi. Was there anything special about the domes to you, the, the way that this, they were structured that kind of felt like in some ways, I don't know, what's the best way to say it, just more comfortable is the way I would put it? Well, uh, especially for the presentation, that um, I mean, having that circular seating that they have, uh, that definitely made it more convenient because everybody was kind of circled around. Um, right. 
as far as just a living space, I, I would say that's, you know, if you had one TV and you had a circular, uh, I mean, it would be better that way. But, I mean, it, it was definitely inviting. I couldn't say whether or not it was just because it was the Venus Project or just because of the design. I think it was a, a you know, altogether thing. But either way, I did like it. I was surprised, actually, because I thought, just from my own logic and what I'm used to living in, that a circular wall and everything, like I was trying to picture it in my head and I, I thought that wouldn't be that effective because I was picturing my furniture <laughs> in, a, in right. a dome and I thought, yeah, that doesn't really fit. But when you actually see what they did, it's it, I was like, wow, it, it's one of those things you don't think about much, but when you do see it, you're like, wow, okay, this makes sense. They built everything in that way and, and kind of into the structure that it fit perfectly. It was, it was, it looked great. Everything, you know, there was still symmetry and, and uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty inviting. Um, it, it was very nice. Yeah, I'm definitely going to miss that place. Uh, I mean, it, if we can't for some reason save it, which I really hope that we can, um, Jacques and Roxanne are talking about having to leave the country and going to a place where their money will go a little bit further if for some reason, uh, we can't get together enough money to keep that place going. Um, I gotta say, I feel that it would be a great loss uh, to our movement if the Venus Project site is not maintained. Um, I just fell in love with that place, and now whenever I watch, you know, videos with the various places that I've been in, it's very surreal. Cause like, wow, you know, I've been there, and <laughs> I've been to this place, I've been to that place. I remember the various like, um, you know, domes or individual placement and I mean, did you watch, have you watched any of your Venus, Venus Project videos since you got home, TV? Uh, no, not really. Just the uh, the full interview with uh, Larry King, the, the 40-minute one, because I, I have, well, I had computer troubles when I got home, so I, I spent all today, I just got home last night, and I spent all today trying to get my computer up and going again. I had a hard drive go out on me, so, uh, while I was gone. Yeah. Well, um, which DVD had that on it, by the way? I haven't been able to find it yet. It was uh, Future by Design, the extras. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I'm getting ready to watch that today, actually. I watched the first part of it earlier, so. So what did you think of the Larry King interview? It was great. It's it's one of the, I guess that was my favorite thing, I had something I really wanted to see, because I could never find anything outside of the four-minute one that's on YouTube. Right. As I saw it, I, I, I have always wanted to see the entirety of it, and it was 40 minutes of stuff with uh, Larry King, and it was like, wow, you know, it's some of the same stuff he's saying today, like 40 years ago, you know, it's, well, not 40, uh, 30, 38 years, whatever it was, ago, um, it, it, it was just mind-blowing, the maglev technology, the circular city, the uh, cities in the sea, all the stuff he was talking about back then. And now we, we see it and we go, well, yeah, that's that's totally feasible. But back then, people would have been like, obviously people would say, nah, that's that's nuts. And it, it really gives him credibility to see the ideas he had then and uh, how now we can see how very viable they are, those ideas that seem so far-fetched so long ago. And it just blows my mind, like the maglev technology especially, that that long ago he was pushing for using maglev technology. And now here we are, you know, 30 some odd years later, and uh, it's, 
you know, become more well-known, more mainstream, that, yeah, okay, Megalith's out there, but uh, it's still not really used. And it's like, wow. I don't know. To me, that was mind-blowing, just uh, seeing his ideas and how far back they go. Right. And, yeah. And all the energy he had in that interview. I mean, I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but it was just, it was like, I mean, it was definitely him, but it was like, you know, he was almost, I, I don't want to say he was angry, but it was like he was just perturbed that we weren't already going in that direction. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? It was like he was mildly frustrated that, you know, he had to go through all of the, you know, just explaining this to people because it should be so obvious. It, do, do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, I know exactly. Uh, although he, he got he got very passionate about it, but he also, I mean, the only thing I would say is that he was saying, yeah, in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to be here. I think today it probably is something sad for him to see that here we are, you know, uh, 30, almost 40 years later, and we're still <laughs> stuck in the old way, and that's that's got to be a bummer for him. But, yeah, I mean, back then he was so excited about it and so and, – and, adamant about pushing these ideas and people just thought it was crazy and now here we are it seems more viable and still people aren't you know necessarily catching on large scale but yeah he had a lot of energy back then he's very you know he's a lot younger more vibrant and it was cool to see him that way and now he's old and he still does have some of that spark but uh i mean obviously i mean he's 93 it's it's amazing that he's still alive it's almost uh i mean i you know, it's almost like, wow, you know, it maybe it's like something kept him going this long that he's still sane, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, and I remember actually because of like all the energy that he has when he talks now, I mean, yeah, there is definitely a difference. Like I've been watching a, now like my new favorite Venus Project video is actually Welcome to the Future. And um, like him and Roxanne both look like probably about 10 years younger. I didn't really look as to see when it was, from it. it really did a very good job of explaining the Venus Project in very simple terms. And it's funny to me that, you know, we have to go through, it's like all the questions were answered in this one video. A lot of the questions they had, you know, it's like they made it clear, you know, no, we don't want to control people. You know, no, we don't want to, like, get involved in people's lives or any of that other crap. You know, we just want to affect the environment in a positive way. You know, that video in particular really laid it out for me. And since I'm planning on doing my... Uh, presentation to Congressman Dennis Kucinich, I'm thinking I'm actually probably going to use that video as, as my presentation for him because it doesn't go into any kind of conspiracy theory stuff. It doesn't really talk about any of that, and it doesn't really overdo talking about all the problems. I mean, most people know the problems and just talks about solutions. So of the videos that you get in that package, I strongly advise that you check out Welcome to the Future. Future by Design is great, don't get me wrong, um, but I... I you know, in particular, that video, I think, really laid it out in perfect terms. I've played it on Zeitgeist TV a couple times since. Yeah, well, uh, one thing about Feature by Design, I actually, since I've already seen it before, uh, when I was working on my computer, I played it with the directors, um, you know, where he has his voice over it. And I was pretty surprised to find that... Uh, he didn't really necessarily subscribe to the ideas. He was just talking about it from this third-person point of view, like, well, this is what John thinks, this is, you know. And I was like, wow, you know, it's that Gazeki didn't really seem to totally uh, relate, I guess, to what he, you know, what he had made the film about. And, and that was a little disappointing, but... Um, 
I don't know, still interesting, I guess. But yeah, I'll, I'll watch that one tonight for sure. Yeah, another really great interview actually was the one, uh, it's called A Conversation with Jock Fresco. And uh, it's an interview with this black gentleman who asks him all these really great questions and makes a lot of good commentaries. And Jacques had a lot of clarity that day. It was, you know, it was a really well put together interview. I strongly advise people check that out. And I believe all these videos are for sale on thevenusproject.com. Um, so anyway, we're coming up on now onto the second hour of our show. Uh, the switchboard is still open. I haven't gotten any callers yet. So if anybody wants to call in uh, after I'm finished reading, uh, it's 347-945-7747. That's 347-945-7747. So anyway, um, moving back on to uh, reading the next chapter of the book, we're actually almost finished um, with the best that money can't buy. There's only, let me see how many more chapters we have. Um, looks like we're down to, like, let me see, it's like, Further information, we don't really need all of that. How do we get there to here? We're, there's 20 chapters in the book. We're on chapter 16. A lot of these chapters are actually a lot smaller, too. Uh, it is my intention. I have some other books lined up uh, that are not necessarily directly Venus Project books, but they're books that are uh, relevant to the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project as far as like the various corruptions about money. Um, we'll be going into some of those later. I have some um, permission, essentially. Um, and uh, let me go ahead and get started on the next chapter. Chapter 16, Lifestyle in the Future, Family Matters. The media and politicians talk a lot about the dissolution of conventional family structure and societal values associated with it. They see the family as the most basic institution for acquiring life skills of sociability, responsibility, and stability and concern for others. The increasing unrest and lack of direction exhibited by young, many young people seem to validate these concerns. At present, it is not necessary for both husbands and wives to work. Monetary economics have, to a larger extent, undermined family cohesion and child care. Parents lack time to spend with their children, and they are constantly stressed by ever-rising medical bills, insurance payments, educational expenses, and the cost of living. Ironically, one of the most pressing expenses is child care, which to pay for, they must go to work. In this area, one of the most profound benefits of this new civilization could be realized. Shorter workdays will increase opportunities for family members to pursue areas of personal interest. Free access to goods and services will make the home a more pleasant place and remove the economic stress that causes so much family turmoil. Would people be happier in this kind of society? It isn't so much happiness that we seek. Happiness is relative to an individual's distinct nature and is thus individually defined, defined and achieved. We seek to create a society where people are free to choose their own interests, develop formally hidden potential, and pursue their dreams without government intervention or financial constraint. Changing values in a cybernated society. As of this writing, the vision of the good life in ancestral nations, particularly the United States, entails productive and rewarding employment, health, a home in the suburbs and a second in the country, money in the bank, good education, pleasant family relations, healthy and intelligent children, and the guarantee of a secure future. This goal is an elusive fantasy for almost all people. Tomorrow's vision of the good life may differ considerably, 
With the elimination of scarcity, most material needs are met by a world resource-based economy. It is reasonable to expect considerable improvements in living conditions and opportunities for a meaningful and productive life for all people. Consider what the world would be like if most physical needs were met. What will happen to individuality and human values in a world of unlimited abundance? Rather than an age of great leisure, intelligent and committed people would find very little free time, even if they didn't have to work for a living. The energies once devoted to problems of material scarcity could now be directed towards self-development and fulfillment. People would have the means and time for intellectual and spiritual growth and would realize that it is really means to being a means to be a human in a caring society. When social affairs are consistent with the caring capacity of Earth's resources, human beings will evolve a sense of relevance and understanding far beyond what is possible today. All people are culture-bound. We are victims of indoctrination in our social customs. Most of us would be be bewildered and uncomfortable with the flexibility of a new orientation. Today, most of us live in economic and mental straitjackets that limit our ability to work through our problems. For the first time in history, the cybernated world offers us an opportunity to choose whatever constructive lifestyles we wish. Individual lifestyles would be determined by one's varied and changing preferences and not by what someone else thinks is good for them. Let's say that again. And not by what someone else thinks is good for them. (laughs) Individual lifestyles, individuality, that thing that all the crazy New World Order nutcases think that we don't value. Anyway. An example of the wide range of choices available in a resource-based economy would be the way one selects a house. A man and woman may visit an architectural design center and sit in front of a clear hemisphere approximately six feet in diameter. The woman describes the type of house she would prefer in her areas of interest. The house appears as a three-dimensional image in the center of the hemisphere. It rotates slowly and presents an overview of the interior and exterior. Then the man describes his area, area major, I'm sorry, his major areas of interest and preferences and maybe suggests a larger balcony. The three-dimensional image is adjusted accordingly. When they finish requesting changes, the computer presents various alternatives for them to consider. They will also be able to enter a sensorium to, sensorium to experience a walkthrough of their preferred design and continue to make changes. When they arrive at a final design, construction procedures are set in motion. The computer selects materials for efficiency and durability. None of the architecture is permanent, and it can be modified and updated at the request of the occupants. This is real individual choice. In a monetary system, most of us live near our work with a house, car, and lifestyle we can afford, or all too often cannot afford, rather than the one we prefer. We are only as free as our purchasing power permits. Even many wealthy people today select the residents mainly to impress others in their st- with their status. Lacking a true sense of self-worth, many live to impress others. A resource-based economy changes the function of our dwellings from that of a status symbol or a basic shelter to a reflection of our individuality and interests. A resource-based economy would provide art centers, music centers, theater projects, and an opportunity for all to return to an educational environment, allowing them to pursue their interests. Although people would be economically secure, they would still need real challenges to maintain incentives and enhance creativity. The future will offer these challenges in abundance. Hold on a second. Somebody's trying to get dark dancers finally ready for me to add them to the call. <laughs> We're actually finished with Chapter 16 now. These, that chapter was very brief. Let me add him to this call real quick, and um, we will continue.
There we go. Sorry about that, Dark Dancer. Uh, it's easier for me to add you to the call than for you to add yourself. But anyway, were you able to hear us read that chapter, Dark Dancer? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Unfortunately, I was not. I was at a later. Okay. Well, basically, um, you've got an echo. Can you turn down whatever it is you're listening to us on? Is this helping? Let me see. Yep, I can't hear myself, so that's a good sign. <laughs> All right, well, um, basically we were just reading Chapter 16, and it talked about uh, a lot of things, but mostly it was just kind of went over lifestyles of the future. It talked about how different our lifestyles would be. It discussed the issue of um, you know, just how different people would be in a society without money, how they wouldn't have any stress, and it seems as though Dark Dancer called this call has dropped. So I'm going to add him to the call one more time. But yeah, my call cut off as well, so it did something and I had to... No, you're still here, though. That's the thing is it didn't, it didn't disconnect you. I don't know what the deal was with that, but... Try to add him back to the call. I apologize to the listeners. Um... Dark Dancer was running some kind of international Zeitgeist chapter meeting, so he was busy for the hour, first hour of the show. See if it'll let him back on. He might have internet problems because it's not letting him connect. But, um, all right, Chibi, um, since you did hear this chap- this chapter, <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's uh, definitely easy to see that he had internet problems. I'll try to add him later. But anyway, Chibi, go ahead and comment about what you thought about this particular chapter. Well, uh, I mean, I, I guess it should be obvious to those of us that understand these ideals, but you do come across these people who think that this sounds like a regimented society. And, I mean, this chapter, to me, just kind of speaks of how that's not true. And um, to me, I mean, many chapters speak of that, but this one uh, sort of emphasizes that, but it is, uh, like you said, it you repeated it is individuality will be expressed more so here you know having two millionaires uh, I mean they're both going to buy the same mansion and two middle class are both going to buy you know the same house on the same block that look exactly the same right (laughs) not much individuality in that that's just expressing what monetary uh, position you have to express and that's it but it's not much else in this system this system is very regimented obviously Right. I totally agree. And I remember actually commenting on that while Jacques was, while we were on the tour, because he was describing how you would get your own house and how, like, you know, actually what the book just described about the three-dimensional thing that would, you know, basically tell us, you know, you know, hey, okay, so you want this size living room and then you want, you know, all right, you know, like Gladys said, describing your hobbies is like, well, maybe I'm a woodworker or a sculptor. So then it would, like, make a room for you to work on your sculpting or whatever. You know, and then she would get to describe what she wanted out of the kitchen. And basically it just, you know, it, that's like more choice than anybody gets on their home now. Nowadays, unless you're lucky enough to like go through the trouble of hiring an architect for yourself and building your own home, which almost never happens, you generally have no say where you live. You get to pick through a, a section of like prefabricated homes. We're talking about a system 
that would allow you to, you know, it would still be prefabricated homes, but you'd be allowed, allowed to assemble them any way you wanted. And, you know, another major aspect beyond just the buildings that we're talking about is the fact that in this case we're talking about, you know, the structures that, uh, you know, but with just like the way that it'll change things for your life because you'll have so much more free time. You know, you'll be able to spend more time with your family. You'll be able to spend more time on your hobbies and your pursuits. You know, and that's and then your incentive is actually going to be, it, you know, I, they always talk about how supposedly people are just going to lie around and do nothing all the time, but that gets boring. I mean, ev eventually, or, uh, I'm sorry, eventually these people are just going to want out of that. They're going to want to go do something, especially when you have so much to offer. I mean, who the hell would stay in their house all day laying around when they have a recreation center right next to their house, a music center, you know, or the ability to travel anywhere in the world? You know, especially even just through, like, social, you know, reasons. Like, we decided to go down to the Venus Project. You know, we met some people on the Internet. I mean, obviously, the Internet's not going to go away. You and I met over the Internet. You know, we met Gangrene over the Internet. So then we all decided to go together, you know, to, uh, you know, to this other place. And you think about how much crap we had to go through to do that. And the Venus Project, we could do that easily. We would just jump on a maglev train, you know, and we'd be there. We wouldn't have to go through all this crap, you know, to just be able to have basic, like, interactions, like, as friends. And then, like, think about all the various things that we saw while we were there that we would have liked to have done that we couldn't afford to do, like driving past Disney World, Gatorland, and all those other places. You know, in a Venus Project Society, we would have been able to go do that for free. And that's one of the reasons why when people talk about how supposedly the monetary system and the capitalist system gives you choices, I just want to laugh at them. Because... I don't have any choices at all other than what I can afford. Um, and the Venus Project system gives me all the choices. I'd be able to go to any recreational place I wanted. I wouldn't have to pay for it. And, and more to the point, you know, in, in many cases, our values would be changed. So a lot of the places I'd want to go would be educational in nature. I'd want to go to other places and learn and explore. I mean, do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, definitely. I was thinking in the sushi bar or the the sushi restaurant actually right. brought that up because they had you know hundreds of options and yet it's so expensive, it's so expensive, and it's like okay, well I want to try this and this and that's it. That's all I can afford. Well, what about all these other things? So right. Uh, I, I guess to me that's what came to mind as far as our trip. But yeah, I mean I don't really care about Disney World much, but just as far as the restaurants that we passed along the way, I was like, wow, I've never tried, uh, you know, this or that or that or this, and all these things we passed. But they're so expensive, you know. It's it's really a matter of elegance. Like, oh, this is elegant, so we're going to charge more for it. But it doesn't really cost more to make. It's just a matter of the fact right. that it's in a, a rich area. <laughs> and so they're going to charge more and, you know, give you a fancy uh, napkin and, and a fancy chandelier over your head. Right. Say, okay, it's fifty dollars for this meal, not because it's better or anything, but you know. But I don't know. That's why I laugh at capitalists who say that the price mechanism is this great tool for figuring out what people need. <laughs> the price mechanism is so corruptible, and you end up paying way more for something than you would ever need to. Like uh, was fun, and in some cases, if you pay less for it, somebody else is paying more for it. Just like uh, the story of stuff really laid out. Um, Speaking of the story of stuff, I, I think you might have been there, but uh, I talked to the lady who was in the story of stuff recently, and I put her in touch with, uh, I'm basically working on getting her in touch with the Venus Project. Um, I gave her links to Zeitgeist to Denim. She says she's going to be watching it. Apparently, she, you know, it's funny that 
somebody came to so many of those same conclusions as we have and didn't know about Zeitgeist. I'm, I'm running into this more and more, you know, often actually. Now, so Dark Dancer, did you have anything like that you wanted to talk about as far as like uh, how lifestyles of the future would be? You know, how things would change and, you know, change our values and stuff? Because that's basically what that chapter is about. Or are you still there? It says you're linked up. <laughs> Dark Dancer. Hello. Yes, I am. Yeah, I oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I pressed the wrong button. And uh, sorry, that that's because I was a little bit uh, stressed out because of my piece of excellent technology decided to reboot itself <laughs> uh, during what he invited me. My apologies there, VDV, and to the listeners as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yes, yeah, so lifestyles of the future. Um, well, seeing if we can advocate the Venus project in, in the correct way, then I would see the future as being much more sophisticated as the current, uh, the current lifestyles. I mean, uh, today I, I've, I've read a, a really good article about the century of the self, about individualism, and I think that uh, the lifestyle of the future, and I don't know if I'm being in line with the topic because I've missed a large part of what you read, but uh, I think that it will be much more about uh, being one community as a whole instead of being focused on oneself's ambitions. No, that that's still in line with the topic. We were basically talking about that. Now, being as how that that last chapter was really brief, I'm going to go ahead and read another chapter since we still have plenty of time. Um, so if you guys want to mute yourselves and listen, we'll get on to Chapter 17, Future Possibilities. No one can foretell the future of education, science, and technology with precision. There are too many variables involved, and the advent of newer developments entails an exponential rise in the learning curve. Therefore, we can only extrapolate change based on our current trends. Although this method has its limitations, it is the best that we have at present. The future will generate its own values. The following projections of the future have little in common with current scenarios popularized in mainstream publications. Gadgets and gimmicks available only to the upscale, high-income households, such as high-tech kitchens with appliances that talk and think, more advanced and sophisticated weapons, more planes and ships, and enhanced personal security systems. All these are relevant to a scarcity-oriented culture, and the need and desire for many of them disappears with the implementation of a resource-based economy. One major development in the future will be informatics, the science of, science of relevant information, we are already moving from a data access to management of information. From data access to management of information. The internet and information technology allow us to create and use stateless information. New information we create by combining data and information from separate data systems and websites. Development is also ongoing in knowledge management, although most efforts focus on um, archiving documents and documents and processes. In a monetary-based society, this is, a, this is logical. These are seeable projects. True knowledge management allows the unconstrained and simplified access to vast amounts of pertinent information. Nanotechnology also shows enormous potential. Nanotechnology combines optics with lasers. This technology will enable us to assemble matter atom by atom into whatever molecular configuration is needed. Even today, a variety of micromachines, some far smaller than a grain of sand, are part of our technology. This technology is capable of propelling a tiny turbine made of a silicone compound. When a laser illuminates the turbine and the beam is focused at the turbine blades, 
These micro-machines spin rapidly and can be used for many different purposes. Other micro-machines would be clear plaque from blood vessels, or could, I'm sorry, would clear plaque from blood vessels and perform pre-programmed surgical procedures. Eventually, medical nanoreplicators may replace damaged or non-functioning organs. Some may even outperform the replaced organ. This includes livers, hearts, eyes, brain tissue, and more. Nanotechnology will lead to a submicroscopic revolution, not only in the field of medicine, but in industry as well. In the industrial sector, production machines would become much more versatile. Dyes would be programmed to assume any required configuration by, by, the, by varying the molecular bond, while maintaining accuracy in the system throughout the production process. Each machine becomes faster and more versatile, performing an almost unlimited range of tasks. Noise abatement systems will be used throughout the industrial environment. Eventually, the need to transport goods and services will also diminish. Products will be re replicated and, produ and produced within one's own community and ultimately within one's own home. With other forms of energy, we would be able to explore our outer space. Intelligent robots and mega-machines would terraform, meaning modify, uninhabitable, plan uninhabitable planets above ground and underground to support human and plant life and provide all the necessary conditions to sustain human colonization. The replacement of paperwork by computerized technologies enables industries to save thousands of feet of space formerly used to house documents. This also eliminates thousands of clerks and secretaries. Microchip te technology which could free up more than 70% of the storage space formerly needed. At present, millions of people throughout the world have access to electronic information storage systems from their home homes, work, school, libraries, etc. These information storage systems will continue to shrink, especially with the advances in nanotechnology. What may occupy thousands of square feet of storage space today with molecular information storage systems will fit on the head of a pin. People could have microscopic implants that, in the event of an accident, could instantly download all relevant medical information when they arrive at a hospital. This would eliminate emergency room paperwork and make the diagnosis much faster and easier. Another fascinating process is advanced shape memory in plastics and metals and other materials. This process will probably lead to submicroscopic electromorphic materials. Such materials will alter their external appearance to whatever shape will produce the best performance. Most home furnishings in the future will be capable of adjusting their shapes to accommodate the human body. In the future, we'll have a realistic 3D visualization and teletactile and olfactory enhancements that enable one to touch and smell flowers and visual representations from undersea to the stars. By the way, that's what a holodeck in Star Trek is, and Jacques Fresco was actually consulted by a, a group of science fiction by, um, writers who ended up bringing all this stuff up on Star Trek. Um, in fact, like the terraforming is, terraforming is very similar to a lot of other things you see in Star Trek. So. Anyway, with the advent of artificial intelligence, the technological performance of machines will outpace, outperform, and outgrow the need for managerial oversight. Molecular circuitry will eventually provide the interface to enable human beings to engage in intelligent discourse with machines. This technology would enable machines to repeat and understand written or spoken language, including sign language or braille, and permit instantaneous translation throughout the world. These same technologies could do research in all branches of the physical sciences. Not only will this newer technology replace humans in the production process, but in the service sectors as well. 
Computer-generated technologies for multimedia applications could affect the future of entertainment, resulting in 3D, teletactile, and olfactory images that simulate living beings and locations. The results could be so lifelike that it would be almost impossible to tell simulation from reality. With teletactile simulation and the projection of a human image, we will be able to shake hands with virtual visitors and walk them through our gardens. These virtual visitors would be able to pick up objects and examine them. They would appear as not as synthetic projections, but as living, breathing human beings. Today, we can only imagine what teletactile imaging could mean to people who have lost loved ones or who have lost limbs or eyesight. It also opens the possibility of being in many different places at the same time, a scenario once considered an absolute impossibility. This occurs on a very primitive level today through the electronic media when the president addresses the nations of the world. If this boggles the minds of forward-thinking people, think, think what it could do to our culture-bound, rigid notions of reality. Regardless of personal views about the worth or value of this technology, it is coming. We already live in a world where yesterday's fantasies have been surpassed by today's realities. Probably the only thing we can know for sure about the future is that it will be very different from to the world of today. But whatever difficulties we are having trying to understand life in the future, it is nothing compared to the difficulty people of the future will have understanding the way we do things today. They will likely find it hard to believe that human beings organize themselves in such an absurd fashion into nations and then set, them about, set, up, set about using scientifically designed weapons to slaughter each other. As they watch movies of the past, they will probably be astounded at tobacco smoke emanating from people's nostrils and, in, and at ostentatious clothing and omnipresent jewelry. They will find our simple, animal-like emotions of hostility, rage, and jealousy, jealousy incredible. People in the future will probably not look back with nostalgia on a world threatened with atomic oblivion, environmental degradation, and economic and political activity, activities permeated by greed and self-centeredness. How simple, crude, and pathetic we will appear in the eyes of our descendants. Perhaps as strange and unpleasant a sight as our own imaginings about our primitive ancestors. When biological technology becomes further advanced, Human beings as we know them will become a modified species. If we fail to include the possibility of this development in our overall social evolution, we will witness the decline of our species. All social innovation must allow for change in a constantly evolving world. So that's the end of that chapter. We're now down to uh, three chapters left in the book. We should be able to finish the show here. Um, with discussion about what we just talked about. So, Chibi, what did you think about that chapter? Um, well, I, uh, it's interesting. Some of it's speculatory, but it still seems possible. Um, I, I remember he talked about affecting your senses uh, when we were down there and, mm -hmm. and trying to simulate experiences. And It's an interesting topic. We don't have to really speculate that, but it's still very interesting. Um, I, I guess the most the thing that stuck out to me in this chapter was just how he talked about uh, how emotions guide us today and things like that and these outvoted ideals. Uh, to me, that's one of the things that even since a young age I, I thought was very odd. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know. It's a pretty short chapter. Yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely true. Now, Dark Dancer, did you have any comments? Well, yes, for certain. I mean, it it was a good chapter, and it did uh, present a lot of um, 
theoretically great uh, technologies. Uh, one thing that occurred to me, though, is that uh, there was one chapter that uh, some type of imaging would be beneficial to people who are blind, and I didn't really get it. Perhaps you could elaborate on that subject. Um, well, I know that they were talking about uh, the possibility of, in the future, being able to basically, like, like they said, affect the senses, you know, um, be able to find ways to interface technology to be basically be able to allow people to use, like, say, cameras as their eyes. Uh, that's another thing that was in Star Trek quite a bit. There was a character named Jordy uh, who had, like, this special visor that allowed him to see not only in the normal spectrum, but it allowed him to see in other spectrums. Um, like, that are not normally capable with the human mind. And it basically, he had implants in the sides of his head that allowed his brain to use this device to interpret signals rather than his eyes that didn't function because he was born blind. Um, and that, that's basically what I'm... Uh, that would be the best way I can answer what you're talking about, given the information. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yes, it definitely does, because it was it was just confusing to me as a person, but... Now, for the rest, it, it was it was a great chapter, but to me, it, it's a lot of great suggested technologies. But uh, I'm going to return the question: like, where are we in the world now, and how far are we off from being these technologies? Or, oh, sorry, from seeing these technologies being implemented? Well, what you know, these? go ahead, Chidi. Uh Well, as far as the blindness goes, uh, they already today have experimental technology. Um, trying to implement things that allow you to see, um, you know, to basically rebuild the eyes through technology, basically give you prosthetic eyes. Um, I mean, it's stuff that they're working on. Not saying they're there yet, but it's feasible. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, it's basically, uh, aside from that, I mean, you still have the, uh, the option of, like, these sonar uh, ideas that people I've talked about, I mean, that's like 20 years old where they talk about trying to give you this sonar thing that will alert you of objects and things like that instead of having a, a blinding eye dog. But they're getting to the point already now where they're experimenting with trying to make it so you have this uh, computer that visually uh, feeds your brain the signals that your eyes otherwise would. I don't know how close they are on that kind of thing. I mean, I have a, a grandpa who's blind and he knows, you know, he keeps up on, you know, he keeps track of that stuff more than I do, obviously. But, you know, I know there's experimental programs with stuff like that already. I don't know if it's the same as the teletactile um, imaging that he talks about where you're actually affecting the senses directly. But it's similar. Yeah, you know, I remember um, uh, Jacques and Roxanne were showing us that thing, I guess, I forgot what he called it, but it was like 3D printing where basically, like, he sent somebody, like, you know, a, a picture of his, one of his apartment buildings, and the guy basically sent him back something that he was able to print um, that basically fabricated exactly what was in his picture. Um, you know, like, the mod I mean, it was just a model, obviously. But with that system, he was basically allowed, you know, able to send a design via a picture over the Internet to somebody who then was in turn able to fabricate the exact model when you think about that, that's like the beginnings of like this kind of technology where we can fabricate things, you know, as needed, like tools, you know, uh, specific pieces that you might need to build something. You know, you could just like essentially download them and then the computer would make them for you. Um, so, I mean, 
Yeah, we're, you know, this, this book, this uh, part of the book definitely reaches really far into the future, but it touches on something else that I think is really important is what he was pointing out is, is that, you know, 10 years ago even, I mean, hell, even like five years ago, there was technologies that, you know, we didn't have yet that now I look at and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm just amazed by that. Um, I mean, like, I still remember when the first VCR was given out and what an amazing thing that was. Um, you know, a lot of things that various, like, science fiction and futurists have talked about in the past, people thought they were crazy. Like, when Gene Roddenberry said that you'd have a handheld, com- you know, computerized communication system that was, like, you could fold up and put away, you know, there are a lot of times when I look at somebody pull out their cell phone and I think about Captain Kirk pulling out his, you know, communicator like, that was back at, like, when TVs were still black and white and people were like, wow, what a fantastical idea. And the, the cell phone does a lot of things. I mean, it doesn't allow you to communicate with a ship in space, but I don't really, th- really think we're that far away from that technology. There just isn't really much practical application for it right now, so it's not really being developed because you don't exactly, you know, dial phone calls to the shuttle. But you can still talk to people in outer space using radio transmissions, and those are getting better and better all the time. I mean, do you guys think of any technologies that you remember developing and, like, nowadays we just take for granted? I would say all technology would fit under that at some time window or another. But I think as far as, like, where we started with this was the monetary system really, what you look at is uh, how many blind, rich blind people do you know? How many wealthy blind people do you know? How much marketing can you get out of, during uh, that kind of thing, right? I think that to me, it, that's the profound thing about this. Mm-hmm. That of course you're not going to, you know, spend a lot of time, effort, and money researching and trying to cure something that you're not going to get profit out of. Right. No, I totally agree with you there. And I would also point out that, you know, when we're, we're talking to the subjects of like, you know, the fact that a lot of this stuff is not developed because there's no money to be made. You know, the only, you're right, the only rich blind people that I know of offhand are people who were either at one time had their sight or um, eventually, you know, or people who are musicians or whatever, like Stevie Wonder or, you know, people like that, or maybe those who have been successful enough to, you know, as actors maybe to get into the mainstream. But even then, they can only, of course, play characters who are blind. Um, and in the most cases, you actually end up in situations where you have actors who, are, who can see who are playing blind characters I remember, like, uh, Daredevil, and the movie Daredevil, Matt, you know, Ben Affleck had to go, like, spend time with a blind actor to learn how to behave blind. Um, but, yeah, I know where you're coming from, and, and there are a lot of problems exactly like that, where, wherein, you know, uh, other than maybe if a rich person happens to have a child that was born blind, they don't really look into this sort of thing very much. It's not very high on their priorities, you know, and I've thought about that a lot, actually, because when we were talking about how the Venus Project has trouble finding money, you know, and that guy who, um, you know, for example, who, who sells his learn to draw with Jacques Fresco stuff, and now they only get 10% of it. You know, the, that guy was already a millionaire, like, when he met them, and they were hoping maybe he would be a good sponsor for the Venus Project, and it turns out he just, you know, basically just, he gives them, like, 10% of, like, Jacques' you know, work, really, essentially, and he keeps the rest of it. You know, that's an example of what you're talking about, is that, there's just so many times when, like, actually, I think uh, Roxanne really laid it out really good in Zeitgeist Addendum when she said, you know, if there's no money to be made from solving a problem, nothing will get done about it. 
Yeah, I have to agree that that's a general uh, point of view in in the current society. If if it's not rewarding to solve a problem, people won't invest time in it. It's generally uh, a really sorry thing. Right. So, um, but you know, like other technologies that come to mind. I mean, honestly, like I've I've spoken about this in previous shows, but the internet. I mean, think about that. You know, like there was a time when talking to somebody who was in another country, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, within our lifetimes, I think within all of our lifetimes, there was a time when talking to somebody in another country with clear voice was like, you know, you weren't going to do it unless you were willing to spend a fortune. You you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's like just this whole, this whole show, you know, and everything that we're doing here, you know, would not have been possible about uh, like, you know, even just say what, 20 or 30 years ago? I mean, how old is the internet? Yeah, less than that for the average person, really. Yeah. Right. And there's still a lot of people who don't have it. Right. Yeah, I, re- I, I remember, um, it's like a lot of our friends that we talk to in Ireland now in the uh, the Zeitgeist movement, it wasn't even that long ago, I was playing uh, Star Wars Galaxies, and I had always wondered why there was nobody on from Ireland. When I went to go uh, to Ireland, um, and I, you know, you, they had internet cafes because it was the only way you could get internet because internet was really expensive in Ireland, um, you know, because nobody had it basically. So, uh, but yeah, basically, um, the the internet technology is huge. I mean, you consider what a great, you know, huge advent in technology it is. And then you know, then you you kind of beg the question. You know, was there a time when nobody would have ever, you know, believed that such a thing was possible? Oh, I absolutely feel that way. You know, the Internet, like, uh, overall, I mean, it's something that we just take for granted. But, like, uh, only, like, you know, it's funny, actually, is that it's something like, you know, whenever my Internet is not working, you know, it's like this huge problem for me, you know, because it's like so much of what I do involves the Internet now. You know, uh, a lot of, like, various things in our lives are almost dependent on you being able to get on the Internet. You know, here's my email. You know, mail, actually, that's an excellent example. Just just basic email. You know, the notion that, like, if when was the last time you sent a letter to somebody? I, mean, I can't even remember. I mean, I, I send in payments and stuff, like, but that's just like sending documents to somebody, you know, like when you're paying your bills. But you can still pay a lot of bills online on this, like, you know, I mean, Really break it down and think about it for a moment. You have a little box on your on a desk, you know, that you plug into a wall, and this allows you to pay your bills. This allows you to instantly send letters to your friends. This allows you to voice chat with people from all over the world. It's just this little box. It's called a computer. I mean, I remember when computers were in their infancy. When I was a kid, I remember my, my brother had a two-megabyte hard drive. <laughs> you can imagine that, yeah, right? I- and I went to school, and I told my friend my brother had a two-megabyte hard drive, and my friend was like, wow, two megabytes? That's huge. <laughs> Nowadays, I just look at that and I'm like, wow, that, that, that's so silly. In my entire lifetime, I've never mailed a letter, like okay. ever. And uh, thinking about it, I've always found mail, especially since the Internet's come forth, uh, you know, I feel like it's this obsolete thing outside of UPS if you're shipping, like, computer parts or, or something you ordered, like an actual object, I was like, wow, why would anybody mail anything? And when I check my mail, it's always just like advertisements. It's like full of crap, like, oh, vote for me or, you know, 
AT&T or something, and I'm like, wow, why do we even waste money on mail anymore? But, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't still have some use, but if it weren't for the monetary system, I wouldn't think it would have a use. You wouldn't mail bills. You wouldn't. I mean, you could ship objects, but you wouldn't mail letters. You wouldn't need to mail bills and things like that. I mean, you could save a lot of energy in that sense as well, as far as the mail uh, thing goes. I think that a lot of people would argue that the the thing that would support us for for a um, historic mail, like like it's been used in in history, like the the physical mail, is that it has a a a touch of um, I don't know how to specifically word it, but it is more humane than uh, having an email because an email is more indirect. I think it's a lot about the effort you put into sending it actually. Like when you write a letter, it's, it's the same effort in, in typing uh, an email, but you go to more trouble to send it to someone. And when I talk to some people about this subject, that's the main argument they put into it. Like if I receive an email, fine, that's, that's all good and all, but if I receive a handwritten letter, then I, I think somebody put a lot more time and effort into it. That's the basic argument. Not that I agree with it, but it's right. what I... A certain amount of... Yeah, a certain amount of sentimentality, I guess. Um, which, you know, I understand where you're coming from on that completely. Um, and I, I honestly, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, I don't think people really put as much thought into what goes into making things like the Internet work. Like, a friend of mine actually would monitor Internet traffic as part of his job and he was like, we were basically roommates, and he lived in the, the um, room upstairs. And just as a joke, as silly as it was, I sent him an instant message via a you know, AOL Instant Messenger. And I said, you know, hey, man, well, how's it going? Haven't seen you in years, you know, because it was funny because he lived so close to me. And then he explained to me how far away um, that instant message, which was a single sentence worth of information, actually had to go to come all the way back to go up my stairs and into his room, you know, what a huge undertaking it is, you know, just to be able to send that little bit of information. Well, it's still just energy, though. It's it, You're not using, uh, well, I, if you're burning oil to get energy or coal, then, yeah, it's a lot of energy. But through free energy or, or sustainable energy, it's not much. It's not the same as cutting down a tree to get paper to print something on and then sending that in an envelope that uses paper and then all the ink involved and things like that and the fuel involved for the mail truck to take it. I mean, it is it is still very, very efficient on the, I mean, as far as electronic information. But, yeah, it definitely has to go, you know, it's, you don't send a message from you to upstairs. It goes to a server, then back across the world to that server, and so on and so forth, back through several gateways. It is, it's amazing, but yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, and think about, I mean, how much, I mean, if you added up all the miles of distance involved in this conversation, I mean, my distance from UChibi is, is, you know, nothing compared to the distance between, say, both of us and Dark Dancer here who's talking to us all the way in the Netherlands, you know, but we're talking about what, crossing the Atlantic Ocean, uh, you know, this information is doing that, it's, it's going over all this land, 
you know, pass through all these countries just to be able to have this conversation. You know, and once again, the reason that this is relevant is because it just has to do with what Jacques is talking about when he says that when people say that these things that he's talking about are so crazy, that that happens all the time. You know, and then inevitably, you know, just a few, you know, a few years down the road, things that were originally believed to be preposterous or crazy are now mainstream. Definitely. I mean, emerging technologies are always first ridiculed, like, ha, that can't ever happen. But in the end, you see that almost anything is possible with, with our ambition for technology. I think Shock has a real good point there. And anyone who, who really thinks that the things that are being uh, presented in the Venus Project aren't achievable, they should just take history for an example because this has been claimed a lot of times but always the emergent technologies have always been proven to be possible. Right. You know, I mean, you're talking how fast does it go from us to him to back again, dark dancer. The circumference of the Earth is like 25,000 miles or something, right? Speed of light, 186,000 miles in a second. So it, it's still like instantaneous pretty much. Assuming you're, you know, you have no lag, but, but we're not actually talking about light in a vacuum, but it's amazing. It really is the internet. Consider like, you know, how many people like, you know, for example, in Ventrilo in the meeting that we just had, we had people from all over the world and people from all over the, the country, you know, the United States, you know, all talking and hearing each other's voices, you know, in one channel, you know, essentially. Able, you know, and now think about how different the world would have been if that technology existed long ago. Like, imagine if that ability to do that, say, you know, teleport the Internet back to the 14th century. Imagine how crazy, you know, it would have been, how different it would have been, you know, to have the Internet in the 14th century for kings, queens, you know, to be able to talk to other kings and queens instantly you know, from all over the world to have, like, you know, you could have summit meetings, essentially, things that are not really, you know, that weren't really possible back then. You imagine all the wars that would have been different. I mean, like, I remember one of the things that uh, I asked my, one of my favorite history teachers, Mr. Shively, about was, you know, how come we don't have, like, major fascist takeovers, like, you know, where people just, like, why does the, why is, why do things like the Blitzkrieg no longer really work as well as they used to? And he pointed out that one of the biggest things is communication technology. The Nazis were able to take over entire countries in a single night because of the fact that the knowledge that the Nazis were coming might have taken hours and hours to ever be processed. And by the time that it was processed, it was too late. They were already at your door. You know, so many different aspects of the communication age, essentially. You know, if you, you know, just imagine how different the world would have been in these other situations if this technology existed. I mean, there's just... It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it, you know, just the, the various, you know, things that we have now taken totally by, you know, uh, basically totally for granted. You know, like, like I was saying earlier about the impact it would have on my life if I couldn't turn on my computer. I always hate it. Like, if something's wrong with my Internet. Yeah, I know what you mean. When I got home, my computer wouldn't turn on. So, yeah, Paul Revere, Paul Revere wouldn't be significant today, obviously. You know, right. On horse, you know, the British are coming. You would, you know, you would know about it like that, and you know, there's mm -hmm. as far as war goes. Yeah, I think that does have a profound influence, although it hasn't been fully expressed yet. I, maybe more so now that the internet's prevalent, because mm -hmm. we've had a lot of wars just in the last century that 
people still don't really know about all the invasions, all the wars, all the battles, all the under-the-scene things that go on. But as the Internet spreads, it's becoming harder and harder for establishments to mount these sort of things because of the communication. I mean, people know about what's really going on, and they relate to people across the world. It's not easy for them to sign on to these kind of things they start seeing it's all bullshit that this guy's from you know another country and he's just like me well why would I want to kill him I mean it's a threat it really is that's why I would totally agree on every aspect that Peter says about protecting the internet it's very important it's it's one of our utmost it's something we should be focused on completely definitely and I have to agree with with Neil I mean it is really fun to speculate of what would have happened if if this sort of technology would have been available in the past, but especially what you elaborated just there is that it's really essential to protect the Internet because even if the course of time has decided that this technology is only available in this age, I think especially in this age when a lot of bad things are happening and not just bad things, also good things, but especially a lot of wars uh, are happening, for the wrong reasons, I think the communication technology and advances is just in the right place and time, even though it could have been utilized in the past, but at this point, I think, I, I just, I can say only that I'm grateful that we have this technology this day, because if it weren't for this, then I wouldn't have been able to com communicate with you guys, and have been com able to communicate with a lot of other people and have the same level of awareness that I have at this point in time. So, yeah, the only thing I can really say is that I am grateful that that, that uh, the past took, it took its course and leaded us here. Definitely. I mean, well, hell, I mean, look at it like this. I mean, the entire Zeitgeist movement could have never happened without the Internet. Yeah, I mean, we all watched that movie that way. Can you imagine what kind of an undertaking it would have been for Peter to try to, like, distribute this movie if it wasn't for the Internet? You know, it would not have even been possible. You know, think about a lot of the other information that we take for granted, like the alternative news sources, like, you know, Ron Paul, Congressman Ron Paul, who's in a lot of ways responsible for many of us being here in the United States. Now, even if we don't agree with the way he thinks now, because a lot of us are not capitalists anymore, but, you know, it, we would have never heard of him because, this, you know, like, imagine if the only places you were able to see a candidate like that was on TV – and I think back and I wonder now, like, to how different politics, were, you know, would have been uh, if, for example, there were other candidates that, like, kind of disappeared off the radar, you know, because, you know, that were obviously still going, but you never heard, any, you never heard anything about them. After the media decided that somebody was not, you know, uh, playing along, then you would never have heard of them again, you know, uh, whereas the Internet, you know, like, for example, Senator Mike Gravel, they did a really good job of eliminating him. You know, and the only reason I met him at all was because of, ironically, a blog talk radio radio show that he was able to get onto that somebody, you know, that did for him. And that was the only reason I was even able to hear him or talk to him or meet him, you know. And, and that's the whole thing that, you know, I don't think people ever realize just how important the Internet is, like we were just saying and why it's important to protect it, is like everything would be different right now. You know, everything would be different without the Internet. And it's it, like on a huge scale, like, there's so many movies and documentaries and stuff that I've seen that helped to enlighten me that if I didn't have the Internet, I never would have heard of. You know, unless I was lucky enough to stumble across them in a video store, where would I have ever heard of this stuff? Because it doesn't end up on television. 
you know, it doesn't end up even on cable most of the time. Like, you know, Zeitgeist Addendum, you think that would have ever ended up on on cable, cable TV, if we didn't see it on internet, on the internet? Yeah, of course not. Um, it's it's amazing. Like the book you gave me, Addicted to War, when I when I read that uh, between ni- uh, 1898, 1934, uh, all these different countries we invaded how many times, and nobody knows about that. It's mm-hmm. still to this day not like this open information that we just talk about. And it's like, wow, you, you just really now if that were to if if today we were to invade countries like 30 times in 30 years, I mean. They would never get away with it anymore, but it, it's kind of like the system's already set up, it's already in place, but if the internet existed back then, it would have never got away with this shit. Oh, I totally agree with you, I mean, and that book really lays it out. I mean, it's, and it's funny, you know, it's like how much control do they have over information. I mean, Addicted to War is another thing that I only learned about because somebody gave it to me, and he, where did he learn about it? Well, the internet, um, and it revealed a lot of information that they just don't want you to have, you know. Like, all that stuff, like, when I was finished reading Addicted to War, the first thing that came into my head was, wow, we are the bad guys. You know, it's like you're raised believing that your country is awesome, you know, and that the United States is just this great place, and then you read about the real history, like, you know, like, some of the stuff that those congressmen said, I mean, you read that book, you know, those congressmen said horrible things to each other about, you know, different things that should be done, like, you know, eliminating the red race, you know, uh, it's something actually like that, like when that, that part of Zeitgeist, when they're you know, kind of bringing up that Andrew Jackson was the guy who got rid of the Federal Reserve, I had to point out to a lot of people because some of the people in the Ron Paul movement were like idolizing Andrew Jackson. And if it wasn't for that book, I would have never even known that Andrew Jackson signed into law the Indian Removal Act, which is probably one of the most evil pieces of legislation ever signed in, you know, in the United States Congress ever. You know, and it just quite literally was just, this is genocide on a piece of paper. You know, I, I would have never known about that because they control what you hear about. You know, your education is totally controlled. I remember very distinctly being a child, believing that Russia was evil, because this was during the Cold War, um, believing all kinds of other stuff that wasn't in any way true about Russia that I learned later obviously was wrong. You know, I remember all the propaganda that they gave you. You know, I remember wanting to, t- I was totally sold on wanting to join the military. The only thing that kept me out of it was um, the fact that I have a birth defect in my heart that means that I can't join even if I wanted to. You know, so many different things that they were able to control. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, like as Jacques pointed out while we were there in Venus, you know, they're trying to control the Internet now. And being as how I ran for Congress, I was studying a lot of the stuff, that, the legislations that they want to put together uh, the Homegrown Terrorism Act, actually, is the one you really need to look at because that's the one that's allowing them to do things like say that, uh, well, yeah, if you're involved with Zeitgeist, then you're suspected of terrorism. And the Homegrown Terrorism Act specifically lays out how they're going to investigate the Internet and all of its means by which it produces homegrown terrorism. And it acts like, when you, when you read it, I mean, it acts, but, you know, when you read it, it looks like the person who wrote it acted like there's homegrown terrorism around every corner and there's just, you know, suicide bombers, you know, in every, you know, every strip mall. It's the way that they wrote it. It's all sensationalist writing so that they can pass this legislation that will allow them to do things that violate the Fourth Amendment. Um, you know, and I don't think people, that's another thing, actually. It's like, you know, knowledge of what goes on in your government. Imagine what that was like before the age of C-SPAN. I don't know if you guys ever watched C-SPAN, but in a lot of ways I like it because it's kind of unfiltered. You know, and C-SPAN is a public service, so 
they don't really go out of their way to, um, I mean, I'm sure some things get more attention than others, but, like, there's a lot of stuff. Like, for example, and it was never reported in the news, they put something through the Senate that almost passed. It missed by four votes, and it was going to be an amendment to the Constitution that would have prevented us from adding anything to the national debt. You'd think that would be something that would be really important. But the only reason I even heard about it was because I happened to be watching C-SPAN that day, and they happened to be talking about it. You know, these are all examples of various technologies that are huge in their impact on our society. And this is another reason why when Shock points out that we'll be very different people in the future, you know, these are all things that I think contribute to that. You know, I know that my opinion, for example, of the Arab world is totally different now that I've went on the Internet and researched you know, what it's like to be an Arab and the various documentaries that I only learned about because of Netflix, you know, an internet movie system that allows me to look into movies that I would have never heard of otherwise. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing all the stuff you can learn just through the internet, the information that's out there that you would have never known about otherwise, all the wars that we never hear about. I mean, it's not on TV, you know. You wouldn't know that of all the places, like, especially being American, I mean, you know how it is in America and how we're presented by our media. And when you really look at history and all the places we bombed and all the civilians we've killed around the world, and just we really are the bad guy, like you said. I mean, it, from every angle, I, and not just us, but, I mean, I, I guess you could talk about, like, World War One. To me, it was amazing to look at how World War One unfolded with the British and, and how the Germans were really pushed into that, which caused World War Two. And it was amazing to me to really look at that, step back and take an outside look at why Hitler was allowed to rise to power. It wasn't, and this is something Jock said while we were down there that I haven't heard on many of his interviews, but that really... They didn't, it wasn't that Hitler, Hitler couldn't have walked into America and taken over and said, yeah, let's take over the world. It wasn't like that at all. The people agreed with what he had to say for a reason because of everything that happened. And it was a direct cause from World War One and, and events in between and before that that led up to that. It wasn't just some random, I mean, it wasn't as random as people would think it would be that some dictator just stepped up and said, hey, yeah, let's eliminate everybody and take over the world. It's not that simple. And when you look at history, which the Internet allows you to do, you can really look at it from all angles, not just the, the angle you're given in school, and see how events unfold. It's amazing, and it's, it's amazing and terrifying at the same time. Yep. Of course, yes, and that that's definitely the, the biggest purpose that the Internet has. I'm not saying that the informa information you're being fed on the Internet is unbiased because, of course, there's a lot of disinformation on such a medium as well, but at least the, the largest use that the Internet has is that it offers you multiple perspectives instead of just one perspective at the whole scenery at all, which you would have if you had no Internet and only the TV and the, me and the media. Um, we're actually down to 60 seconds of the live broadcasted show. Ironically, we got a caller who called in while we were at where we were doing this. Um, if you guys don't mind being on a little bit longer, um, we can take this caller and talk about it. It'll be in the archive version of the show. Do you guys mind sticking around a little longer? Not at all. Go for it. Yeah, fine okay. with me. Stay as long. Okay. So, caller from 
I can't identify it. Looks like you called from Skype. You're on the air. Hi. What is this, a rebroadcast? No, no. This is a live broadcast. Oh, okay. Well, I saw in your, in your tags Libertarian and Zeitgeist, so those are two of my favorite uh, tags, so I thought I'd come in and listen to what you guys are saying and mm-hmm. find out your perspective on whatever issue that you guys are going to talk about. So anything with a Libertarian point of view that um, has to do with current events, I'm um, game for and Zeitgeist, uh, same thing. Okay, well, excellent. Um, have you noticed like uh, any of my other previous shows? Um, like, have you been privy to? Any- no, nah, I sure haven't. No, nah, I sure haven't. Oh, oh, but he's got an echo. Got an echo. Hold on. Hold on. Whoever that is. Whoever that is. Oh, Chibi. Oh, Chibi. You need to turn down your turn down uh, your uh, volume. There we go. I'm sorry about that. What were you going to no say problem. there, caller? Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, well, you said you, you're interested in libertarian things and zeitgeist. That's actually pretty unusual. Um, <laughs> I, I thought I was the only one. Um, I was actually the libertarian candidate for Congress in Michigan's 10th District. I was a delegate to the Libertarian National Convention. Um, I was uh, part of the Senator Mike Gravel's campaign when he became a libertarian. I'm actually the guy that kind of made that happen. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, as far as Zeitgeist is concerned, I mean, I, I still consider myself libertarian in most things uh, because of the fact that I'm still really big on, you know, personal rights and things of that nature. But uh, I'm not a free market capitalist at all anymore. Um, oh, I'm no. not a communist or a socialist, but no. <laughs> um, so you're not a communist or a socialist, and you're not a, a capitalist. So what other um, choice remains? Well, uh, that's what the that's essentially what it's about. It's a, a resource-based economy. Uh, did you watch Zeitgeist Addendum? Mm, I I know I saw Zeitgeist. I don't know. If it, I know there's about two versions. I don't know if I saw the first one or the second one. Okay. Well, the best way for you to learn about what it is that uh, the resource-based economy is about would be for you to watch the movie Zeitgeist Addendum. It is essentially the sequel to the first Zeitgeist movie, and it basically presents a solution. Um, But basically, um, a resource-based economy is an economy wherein uh, all of the world's resources are held in common heritage, uh, and then you allow technology to basically develop these resources and distribute them in an extremely equitable way, uh, rather than, and it also eliminates money from the equation. You don't need money anymore. Uh, It's a future step. Uh, it's based on the premise, essentially, that uh, all monetary systems are failing. Uh, the communist system obviously fails. The socialist system fails. And the capitalist system fails, too, but you don't really see it until it's kind of too late. I mean, all like in socialism and communism, when, when fascism is set in, it's usually pretty obvious, um, it, obviously. But uh, in capitalism, when fascism is set in, you may not even know it right away. I mean, in a lot of cases, I honestly kind of think that what we're experiencing right now in the United States could be an example of capitalist fascism. Um, now, free market capitalists would always say, well, it's not quite free market capitalism because we have X regulations, but I don't really think that um, getting rid of the regulations would really solve any of our most you know, obvious problems. Um, and that's largely because of the fact that we live in a um, constitutional republic uh, wherein, uh, I mean, as long as... Uh, any kind of um, political contributions are legal, there's always going to be this effect where essentially government is, is, you know, it's like 
the, the libertarians always blame the government for everything, but they tend to forget that the corporate interests are the government. I mean, you can't even no, get into don't. upper echelons of government unless the corporations are in charge. And Dick Cheney. No, and, no, we don't. No, we don't. We know that li- uh, the corporations it's left to, to themselves. And I've told other people this on my show and other shows that um, if, <laughs> if you take the uh, the invisible hand of government out of um, capitalist society, what will happen is that um, heads of corporations will go around trying to kill each other, trying to get uh, the best advantage. So we don't believe that you know corporations, by any stretch of the imagination, are is, you know is utopian type of uh, solution. What we what we do say is that. If you have corporations, which is uh, human nature, motivated by greed, in other words, the profit motive, and you leave them alone, therefore they'll try to vie for the consumer dollar. Now, if something happens along the way whereby they're trying to kill off the competition or if they're trying to poison or provide bad products which poison the consumer or blow up in the hands of the consumer, if you don't have big government, you have hardly any corruption. Without corruption, you have a fair judicial system so that the consumer can now have proper redress for what happens to them in a fair um, court system. Now, what you're talking about, your particular, I think you call it the natural resource solution or something like that, to me, I'm asking, well, okay, it's nice to have a, you know, a nice global claim and all of all the natural resources of the planet, so who's going to decide which diamonds in Nigeria are going to be good for the people in in Norway? Uh, and you're going to well, have to. Uh, uh, well, real quickly, I would point out that I'm, I'm glad that you have that perspective about corporations being, you know, equally a problem because most libertarians that I dealt with are always like, you know, if you even say anything bad about any capitalist entity, then you know you're obviously some kind of brainwashed leftist and. The idea that anything bad ever comes out of corporations, well, that's all propaganda. Is generally what I was fed when I was part of the libertarian movement. Oh, okay. um, but uh, you know, so it's, I'm I'm happy that you have a perspective at least to be open to that. Um, now, as far as like corporate greed and the idea of turning greed on itself, I think that you know when they're competing when they're competing for the consumer dollar, uh, a lot of that you know was was viable at one time, but it largely has kind of fallen apart in my opinion because of the the breakdown of cyclical consumption. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about the fact that there was a time, for example, when uh, uh, like labor had its it had a bit of an authority because labor could buy, it had its own like uh, element of you need us too in order to be able to produce your your products. Mm-hmm. Uh, automation, uh, advances in technology, whether through just outright automating a job or making it more feasible for you to outsource a job to a country wherein people are starving to death, so they're willing to take ten cents an hour. You know, these two things are bringing down that power, um, and then that just leads to more unemployment in the long run because uh, basically uh, all the jobs that are lost in industry get shifted to the service sector. The service sector gets overwhelmed, and with nobody buying anything, well, then they lay off more people because they can't afford to have more people in the service sector. So then that, of course, turns and it turns into even more unemployment because now even less people are buying anything, and that's kind of the downward spiral that we see the economy going to. A lot of the basics of free market principles were very relevant at one time, but um, it's it's just we're kind of getting to the point now where uh, the technology is outgrowing all of these systems. I mean, I suppose communism could be a little bit more feasible with some of the technologies that we have now than it once was, but it's it's such a corruptible system, you know. Wherein you know, when that brings me to what you're talking about, who makes the decisions about where resources go? 
Um, the Venus Project, which is basically the project that we're kind of more or less talking about in the Zeitgeist movement, um, advocates that the use of the scientific method to make major decisions, um, and then eventually, in many cases, a lot of decisions that were previously made by governments, you know, unnecessary regulations and all that would kind of go away because uh, when you think about it, the, the, the purpose of government essentially is supposed to be to administer resources and their, their distribution in a, you know, within a community. A lot of those decisions can be made just through logic and deduction rather than, well, you know, I'm a politician, I run for office, various corporate interests, they give me money to determine what, you know, decisions I'm going to make about, you know, say, for example, a road you need a road built in your community, so some company, these companies are going to vie for who's going to get the job. What ends up happening instead, of course, is the company that gives the local mayor the most, you know, the largest campaign contribution. Well, he gets to be the, they get to be the one who get the job. I mean, a better example of that would be Dick Cheney's company Halliburton getting that no bid contract where they didn't even have to compete with anybody. No bid. What you're talking bid. about is the major is a major reason why all isms fail, and that's corruption. If you take mm -hmm. communism at its base. It's a pretty good system until you grow so large that the person who is making the bricks for the society um, is getting kind of tired of having all the bricks taken away from him. At right. the beginning, you know, he didn't mind because he had enough bricks uh, to make, had enough time to make the bricks for himself and his family. And if the head of the, the commune wanted to take away the extra bricks and give him some extra fish, then it was fine. But after a while, when, when the commune grows to beyond 100 people or so, then you're going to have uh, corruption, no matter what system you're right. talking about. And the I usually use, I usually use Kim Jong Il as an example of how bad communism gets, because he's kind of like a textbook example. Like he lives high on the hog with his inner circle, mm. and the rest of his country is in total poverty. Um, I just heard Chibi unmute himself. Did you have a comment about the conversation so far, Chibi? Not necessarily. I was uh, just preparing to key in. Uh, oh, okay. I, I was I was glad that he pointed out, I mean, because Marxism, uh, what Karl Marx wrote about really at its base, like you said, wasn't a bad idea, but it, like you said, it's still corruptible, just like all the other systems, all the other isms are corruptible. Uh, and, and, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have, look, in any situation, any country, if you have three people in a room, I always say four of them want to be the boss, and meaning that it's inevitable that everybody sometimes, some way, if given the opportunity, wants to be the boss. And if you want to be the boss, you want to control other people. The whole history of mankind has always been control, conquer, control, conquer. It doesn't matter what ism is in place. Communism failed. Um, a capitalist system will fail. Uh, what other systems are out there? Socialism because people, once you have the consolidation of power, want to keep that power, and they want to keep it by killing other people. It doesn't well, matter. Well, you know, actually, right. that, that's actually something I would comment on, because like when you talked about human nature, uh, in the Venus Project, we actually feel that the majority of human nature is brought on by your environment. Um, if, if unemployment rises in a given area, you will see the statistics prove that crime uh, as percentage rises accordingly, and that's essentially a reaction to scarcity. The, the, the need for power is also a reaction to scarcity. Um, the greed is also a reaction to scarcity. You even see that in the, uh, you see that in like the most common things, like in the animal kingdom, the squirrel 
basically uh, will squander way more resources they need for the winter than they could ever possibly use, and it's because of the fact that they're essentially compensating for the possibility of scarcity. Um, now, the way that this kind of reacts is like when you talk about how whether or not people react differently. Uh, Pavlov actually did a study at one point using chickens where he basically had, you know, like one group of chickens that he gave all the feed and water they would ever need, and he had another group of chickens that he didn't give anywhere near enough. And the chickens who had everything they needed, well, they responded fine and they got along just fine. Uh, the chickens that didn't have anything, he was even able to get chickens, which are not generally what I would call a combative animal, to kill one another over feed. Um, and that's an example of, like, you know, basically we don't really believe in human nature and its typical uh, understanding other than to say that you are exactly a product of your environment, and the only human nature is that you will do whatever is necessary to survive. Uh, Jacques Fresco, the person who's essentially the progenitor of the ideas of the resource-based economy, uh, did a lot of travels in his time, and one of the places he traveled was to a Pacific island where there was so much food, uh, and, and the, everything was basically, the, you didn't even read much for dwellings because the, you know, the weather was so great, that the people that he encountered there never fought one another, and, you know, totally got along all the time. There was no fighting, no war, no need for power, because everything was there and was given to them basically by their environment. So our idea is, what our idea essentially is to allow technology, which in many ways is held back by, you know, by the isms for different reasons. Like, you know, in fascism, they don't want you to have certain technology because they're afraid that it will take away their control. That's why, you know, uh, Asian people develop martial arts, because their fascist regimes were preventing them from being allowed to own weapons. So they, did, they, so they developed accordingly. In the capitalist system, a lot of technologies are held back because, you know, if they were allowed to be given to the common populace, their profit margins would change. That's why we're not driving electric cars. It's why we're still using, you know, the, uh, the internal combustion engine, you know, even though it's been obsolete for like 50 years. It's why we're still using all of these uh, fossil fuels, you know, that are not only bad for the environment, you know, they're basically something, you know, the reason why fossil fuels are superior uh, you know, to, as far as a profit margin to other forms of energy is that they're free and could in theory be made sustainable and maintainable. I don't even want to say in theory. Iceland already uses geothermal energy to power like 80% of itself. It is all powered by geothermal energy that's just gotten naturally out of the ground. Um, those technologies are not allowed to be mainstream and in fact are generally discredited by uh, any capitalist society because they like that you're still dependent on coal. They like that you're still dependent on oil, and they're going to continue to make sure that you are as much as possible. That's where in the profit motive, the greed that you were talking about, that libertarians talk about turning on itself as some kind of engine of progress, it kind of hits a wall. And I think a lot of it is also just because ethics have changed. You know, like you said, corruption. There was a time, for example, when the idea of I'm an American company and I've got American workers who work for me. We produce an American product was something that would be somebody would, you know, would aspire to and feel good about. Nowadays, that's how you get out of business if you, adult, if you hold to those ideals. Um, and well, basically, let me, it just... Let me address um, one, of your, um, one of your premises. I agree that the more uh, well-fed that we are, the less motivation we have to go out there and kill. That doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as human nature, which is a driving force. If you take, for example, three babies who have never been taught anything about morality and you put them in a room together, one of those babies is going to be the dominant baby because, and one of those babies is going to try to steal it from the other babies because of a natural predisposition to go get what is pretty, what's out there. And if somebody tries to get in the way, then the other baby, if it's smaller or uh, more gentle, will be pushed out of the way. That's human nature. 
in order to combat that, you have to teach babies as they're growing up the difference between right and wrong. So uh, I don't I don't go along with that thesis that human nature doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, the Venus Project sounds like a very nice, ambitious project, but again, the scientific method, I happen to like it, but who is going to be the head of the distribution? How do we pick them? Why do we well, pick them? Well, I'll get to that. Let me, let me comment a little bit more on this notion of human nature. Um, remember that that's always relevant. You know, like what, what your values are and how you treat other people is completely decided by, decided by the society you're part of, okay? And, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, racism, prejudice, all the ways that we misbehave essentially are taught to us. Like when somebody is a racist, I mean, Jacques Fresco talks about this all the time because he grew up in the South. You know, there were people who would, you know, totally be up on, you know, uh, beating up black people just because they're black. They're raised that way. A lot of that, you know, is there an inclination to do that as babies? Yes, but we raise people to be better than that. You know, um, and after they grow up, it's a question of how far do we take that. If we create an environment wherein, you know, we cultivate critical thinking, uh, you basically pull away, you know, from uh, cultivating anything that creates competition. I agree that you would have less than you have now, but how about those people who go through a medical school or who go through Catholic school or who go through other types of religious training and they still uh, grow up to be members of the mob, to be pedophiles, and to commit other types of crimes? Every kind of pedophilia is created in some way by something that has happened to somebody during their childhood that's, like, scientifically proven. No, nobody just randomly becomes a pedophile. I mean, when you said Catholic school, I mean, that almost kind of points it out, actually. There's all kinds of problems with pedophilia in the Catholic Church. Exactly. Maybe an excellent example. Exactly. But that's, but, and the environment there of the Catholic Church is to teach morals and ethics, yet people will grow up to be... Uh, or the Catholic priests will grow up to be pedophiles. So I mean, right? But gonna, but they were also brought up in some way by their environment to be that way too. Are you well, that's environment along oh. with human nature. Okay. Now, some sometimes human nature is strong enough to resist whatever happened to them. Sometimes it isn't. But to, do, to completely eliminate human nature means you're taking a look at a human being and you're saying the DNA doesn't exist how a person behaves before they're taught anything about morals or ethics doesn't exist. There's, uh, I would have to say that uh, the DNA has a much less of an effect on that. I mean, that, that could be proven just because you look at the vast differences in the way people behave in different cultures and countries. And it's, it's huge. It's, it's not a minor thing at all. I mean, DNA might have a little bit to do with it, and that maybe, you know, it could have some effects on brain chemistry and all that, but we tend to feel that it's, it's, it's definitely nurture over nature, that nature will have some of an effect, but we kind of think of that division as personally anyway in our, our experience with our research. I mean, actually, I could give you an example. Um, there was a, a video played during one of the Zeitgeist events recently uh, where they basically they had these, this group of baboons, um, some kind of apes, I can't remember what kind, but they showed them, and like basically the, the aggressive baboons that were there, because normally you know, male baboons are always like that, um, you know, died off because they were the aggressive ones. They were, they, they, they were living near this uh, tourist attraction, and some meat that was infected with some kind of disease was, being, was thrown into the garbage there. And so the aggressive baboons were the ones who ate it because they were the ones who could beat up the, baboon, the other baboons and make sure that they were the ones who got it. So when they died, uh, a serious change happened in the society of that group of apes. Um, what ended up happening was, is all that was left was the nice guys and the women. So when other, you know, basically that ended up changing the way that that culture of baboons functioned, 
And what happened later is when they reintroduced new, you know, like you know, more adult males came into the situation, they tried to be aggressive, and then that society in turn shunned them and their behavior. And then they eventually they changed and realized, wow, I guess being a jerk here isn't really tolerated. Maybe I should change. So that's what they did. Uh, I mean, we can, we can go around and around about human nature, and what I would definitely say is, like, there's a lot of material we can go through on that, and the Zeitgeist Movement, I would suggest that you check out. And then, you know, um, make, make a note of my show, because I like it when people can call in and, and give me an opposing viewpoint and actually be, like, you know, intellectual and calm about it. Unfortunately, there, I mean, I'm sure you've recognized this because you're a libertarian. There are a lot of people in the libertarian movement who are just total jerks about it. And they're not. They're just not capable of being, you know, oh, uh, intellectual about any of these stuff. Libertarians are assholes. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's. When I tried to um, uh, form a coalition back in 2007 to try to get Ron Paul elected, the uh, the biggest obstacle I had were fellow libertarians. It was right. amazing. Um, yeah, it's, every, it's every crazy. Libertarian, every libertarian has a swelled head. Everybody thinks that they can save the world individually instead of you know joining together and actually. Forming some sort of uh, you know coalition that can go ahead and actually through uh, a juggernaut of many um, can get um, some things done, and they think that that's because a, a lot of them are such people. They have so much trouble with authority. They can't even accept authority with just to cooperate towards a given task. Exactly. It, it, it actually does not surprise me at all that Ron Paul left that party. I'm still part of it, but I'm I'm like struggling with what I'm going to do <laughs> because mm-hmm. I mean it's like you know. It's just I don't agree with the way they view a lot of things, and obviously now not being a free market capitalist at all. I mean, I'm I'm actually on the national committee for the Boston Tea Party, mm-hmm. um, because and their platform just says reduce the size scope of government in all forms. So I can still do that and be a member of the Venus Project because right. that's what we want to do too. Mm-hmm. But you know, anyway, um, you know, we could talk about that at another time. But overall, um, you know, please make sure that you stay in touch. You know, message me or favorite my show or whatever, so that we can I can ho- hopefully ask you to be on other shows. I'm not ending the show. I just um, when this thing cuts off, it cuts off, and it's going to hang up with you whether or not I want it to. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, um, you know, on a, through my site, you can you can link to my my MySpace, uh, my Facebook's linked to it. You know, you can you can link to me up on that. I believe my email is also available. So make sure you get in contact with me because I'd love to have panelists of opposing viewpoints who are capable of conducting themselves the way you are. That's a real credit to you because, like, generally, like you said, libertarians are assholes. I mean, between oh, yeah. that and just some of the anarchists that are in the Libertarian Party drive me absolutely up the wall, bonkers. And, you know, some of them are okay, but some of the other ones, it's just evident that they're in this party because they're mad at their fathers. I mean, I just use that as an example. And they just want to have a place where they can do whatever they want. And you know, the funny thing about this, I remember one guy, he was actually pretty high up in a, one of the state parties. And, um, you know, he was a big you know, freedom anarchist guy. And all about no state this, no state that, you know, no authoritarians. And then, like, come to find out in his personal life, he beats up the women in his life. He's a total, like, you know, he's into the, you know, the domination stuff and right. controls their lives. I mean, this is the guy, you know, in between. His, this is when I found out. It's, like, it's not that this guy wants total freedom. It's that he wants total freedom, including the ability to do whatever he wants to somebody else. <laughs> but um, to, to answer your question, though, um, uh, basically, when you're talking about who makes these decisions, when I said using the scientific method, it basically comes down to this. Um, you have to do, first of all, uh, an unbiased um, evaluation of all the resources in your given community, whether it be the world or just a smaller community. Okay? Um, you then, after you've made that evaluation, using the scientific method, you use, you know, just like the, you've got to be t- stay totally, you know, basic with this. You can't 
We try to get around the idea of opinions. Now, before that makes you terrified, let me explain what I mean. Um, in, ter you know, in, in the Venus Project, we feel that opinions are dangerous because in many cases, opinions are formed without any real investigation. It doesn't mean you can't make those. It's just a question of that's not a way you make policy. Too many people in politics do this. They have opinions about things. I mean, you've seen that already firsthand. Everybody's got an opinion in the Libertarian Party, and man, they're not going to hear anything else. That's an example of people who make uninformed decisions, and especially when these idiots end up elected to positions of authority just because they happen to be charismatic, their opinions end up holding back everybody. So you use no opinions, essentially. You come to conclusions based on evidence that you've pulled together through the scientific method. That's how things are done differently. Now, you use that to the application of how resources are distributed. Now, one of the problems that free market people say is that they seem to think that they have more freedom in a free market system because they can buy for money and, you know, therefore they always believe that they can get whatever they want. But tried and true, time and again, I've always found that that's just not the case. I mean, you see that very heavily here in Michigan because Michigan is an example, almost a testbed of what I think is going to happen all over the country. Actually, a fellow person running for Congress said the same thing, and I've quoted him several times in my own speeches, was that Michigan was an example of capitalism failing. And then what's even more absurd is they're trying to patch it with socialism, and of course that's failing too, mm -hmm. because nobody has any money to be taxed to pay for the programs and, you know, that they're using to try to take care of everybody. So this is why, you know, it's like, you know, generally, you know, I'm glad that you heard me out, because a lot of people assume that if you're not a capitalist, you must also be a socialist. In the Venus Project, we totally figured out that those people, didn't, they don't have the right idea either. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, it's, it's, a, it's an involved process, but what it largely amounts to is, is that you get people who are qualified to make these decisions, and eventually you can take a lot of the decision-making out of the hands of people altogether. Okay, if you, if you have your city, say, for example, we call it a cybernated system, okay, you have sensors, you know, in your environment to tell you, well, there's a drought at X plot of land, you know, here. We need to do something to irrigate it. The computer would then in turn react to that, you know, you wouldn't have to go to some board of directors people, may plead your case, hope that the person in question who's in the position of authority to do it hasn't been bribed not to do anything about it because it would you, in some way yeah, inconvenience you know, some idiot over here. Yeah, well, you in a way are preaching to the choir here because when I have mm -hmm. talked about alternatives on other shows, I've given the example of just imagine if everybody in America had 132 IQ. Everybody right. had that IQ. In other words, everybody was intelligent. Everybody was emotionally balanced. Then you wouldn't have to, uh, have to have a two-party system because everybody would be taking a look at certain problems the same way because everybody would be equally intelligent, equally emotionally balanced, and would come up with the same types of solutions. So, right. Um, it's similar to what you're talking about because eventually you would evolve into the scientific method being used by, uh, by leaders who would be um, selected as opposed to elected. In other words, I happen to be a libertarian anarchist, but I'm a Spoonerite. I don't know if you know about Lysander Spooner. No, Spooner I don't. Spooner is the type of person that believes the only type of government which should exist should be a one-on-one. -on -one. In other words, myself with somebody else with a contract. Nobody else mm -hmm. should decide for me what's going on. Just me and whoever else I want to um, engage with. And then we have in, the in that contract the terms of agreement and the terms of disagreement. If something happens which causes a dispute, you go to um, a mediation. You don't have to go to a justice system unless you really believe in the justice system. And nobody okay, else Okay, I'm familiar right. with that. Huh? 
Yeah, I am, I am familiar with that now that you've explained it that way. I didn't know the name associated with it. I, I know yeah. what you're talking about, about going to mediation and such. Um, you know, and I, it, it's a little bit more rational. But the ones who really bother me in the anarchist groups are the ones who believe in things like spontaneous order. Um, I never heard that of that. We, yeah, spontaneous order is this ridiculous notion that if there's that, 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 that if there's absolutely no intervention whatsoever, everybody will eventually just decide to get along. No, that one. I had to deal with <laughs> I had to deal with this guy for like ten pages of information on our Zeitgeist forums because he just wouldn't shut up about it. And in the Venus Project, we believe that eventually you will need very little of the state, but not because everybody's just going to get along on their own but because you're going to create an environment that doesn't need very many laws, if any at all, eventually, hopefully none, that doesn't need a state because the majority of the things that politicians are supposed to be taking care of that they tend to do a rather crappy job of doing in the first place can be automated, okay? Um, it does not, the machines don't get authority over us as people. And this is another, actually, let me get this out of the way because this is very important for our libertarians to understand about us is that, there is no force or coercion in our system. We do not believe in, you know, there's never going to be a Venus Project tank rolling down your, you know, street, you mm -hmm. know, telling you you need to give us your resources. We're actually totally against that. We believe that enlightened people will eventually come to the idea of what we're doing, and if they don't, they don't. None of us are going to force anybody to do it. We believe that if we can adequately get our society together, even if we just formed one city as a model you know, for other people to look at, that people will eventually agree. And if they don't, they don't. You know, we're we're pretty confident we can handle it through the proper application of science and technology. I have, um, some because, people are already working. Right, because we're probably going to be cut off any um, any time now. What I mm -hmm. do want to say is that I think that if there were um, a, a community of, uh, of Venus projections, <laughs> of Venus project people, it would probably be a good example. But the example mm -hmm. that I want to give um, that might... Uh, go against uh, that particular philosophy is the fact that I think your premise is, is that if people are more content than they usually are, if if if, if bellies aren't distended because of hunger, there will be less aggression, which I happen to to agree with you. However, right. what what the reason why we're in the state we're in today is because of a few people who have all the money in the world, but they still right. want power and they're worth the families are worth probably from what I've read, who knows if it's true, worth about three hundred billion dollars. The Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, etc. They have all the money. Oh yeah, we know about that too. You know, but they still want to control the world. Mm -hmm. So there will be people who will take a look at the Venus Project and say, "That's great. I happen to think it's a good idea." Uh, mm -hmm. But there will be others who will say, "You know what? That's competition. I have all I want. They have all they want. But I want more." Because I'm a psychopath and I like it, and then there'll be the uh, the Rothschild wannabes versus the uh, you know the uh, scientific method um, people who want everybody to have you know contentment in their lives, and I think there still will be um, clashes regardless of nature versus nurture because human nature will win out. What I've always believed would be the cure for all of mankind, and hopefully we don't spread our seed in the cosmos until this happens, because if we do go out there and start colonizing planets, I really pity the rest of the universe. <laughs> but I think what the, the major solution would be a brilliant geneticist to change human nature so that whatever happens to us, the way that we react to it, will not cause us to become aggressive, totally uh, 
well, aggressive to the utmost degree because the history of mankind shows all we want to do is just conquer, 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 even if we have what we want. Dictators always want more. And the scientific method and the way of distribution of uh, resources is a very good idea uh, as a philosophy. How would it become practiced? I think to a degree a lot of people will uh, will become attracted to it, just as in the 60s people were attracted to the communes. And people do, there are a lot of gentle people out here who want nothing but, uh, you know, gentleness and harmony. I, I happen to believe in harmony. But we still have to take up arms against those. It's still the Spartans versus the, Athen- the Athens, the Athenians. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, no, I know where you're coming from. We actually still have 30 minutes before it'll cut oh, us off. Oh, we do, okay. Uh, yeah, but um, I, I wanted to point out um, that, you know, it, when we're talking about transitional phases, is it possible that somebody may want to try to take what we have? Yeah, that's obviously possible, and we're not expecting that we may not have to defend ourselves in some stage along the game. But a lot of this really hinges on the fact that most of us feel that either through proving that what we're doing can be done will therefore change the way people want to live, um, or... If it just comes down to, you know, Mr. Fresco actually believes, Mr. Fresco is actually 93 years old. He grew up during the Great Depression, so he's seen a lot of this stuff and the various things that have changed. He's traveled all over the world to help make his decisions about what he thinks would be a good society. But he believes that it's going to come down to some serious economic collapse. When you look at, like, the birth of all of these isms, Mm -hmm. they generally came about in one way or another due to some big economic collapse where people gave up their old systems, French Revolution... Uh, American Revolution, uh, Russian Revolution, you know, um, the, uh, the situation that allowed National Socialism to take over in Germany. And we, we tend to think that that's what's on its way. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, what you're talking about isn't relevant. It absolutely is. But those are the kinds of big social disasters and economic disasters that allow people to go, you know what, what, what should we be doing instead? Um, and what I think is one of the things that bothers me the most about my friends in the, in the, when I was part of the Ron Paul Revolution is that they think that restoring the constitutional republic would somehow fix everything. And I, I just don't think that that's going to work. And obviously I don't think we should be communists and I don't think we should be socialists. So it, inevitably it's like, well, when the ash is clear, we're going to be presented with an opportunity to give another solution. And it's going to come down to people just being sick of doing the, the same old thing and just resulting in the same old stuff. So, I mean, it just make sure that you check this out. I mean, you checked out the original I am. I'm at, I'm at the Venus Project now. I'm also looking up uh, Jacques Fresco and the Wikipedia and the Venus Project and Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and I'm at your Venus Project uh, site now. Good, yeah. Um, I was actually, I just visited that place this last weekend here with Chibi. We were just there. Um, if you, uh, I don't know where you live. Uh, that's down in Florida. If you ever get a chance to visit it and sit down and talk to Mr. Fresco. Um, no, no, I'm in Montana. <laughs> yeah, that could be a problem. But there's yeah. probably a local Zeitgeist chapter near you. Um, if you go to Zeitgeist Addendum, you can Google search that and watch it for free on the internet. Um, and uh, that's a good place to start. Uh, the Zeitgeist orientation presentation is probably a lot more direct and to the point. Um, it's only about an hour and a half long, and it really lays out our feelings and why we feel the way that we do. Uh-huh. Um, if you're just looking for more of an analytical uh, point of that, I would Google search the Zeitgeist Orientation Presentation. You can also watch that for free on the Internet. Um, and uh, honestly, I mean, the best way to learn all of this is to get Jacques Fresco's book, The Best That Money Can't Buy, which is what this whole series that I'm doing here is about, actually. Okay. Um, if you go to the Zeitgeist Movement 
there's a forum there. You go to the Venus Project section, and I'm in there actually. Uh, v Radio Archives it, it lists all of my various shows on this subject, including lectures by Jacques Fresco. Um, I just want to make sure you have all this information before we get cut off. Right. But, um, but yeah, check all of this stuff out. You know, favorite my broadcast. It'll it'll let you know when I'm bringing up another one, uh-huh. um, because we talk about this subject a lot and. Um, like I said before, you're you're very good at you know articulating yourself without being insulting, which is well, very right. rare. Usually, I, usually I don't get that kind of compliment because I I happen to like to create controversy, but I like the libertarian philosophy. I kind of call myself down tonight, mm-hmm. but I usually oh, like to create good, controversy. The thing that bothered me the most about being a libertarian was that supposedly you're in this free thinking movement, and then if you think anything other than exactly what everybody else is thinking, then they jump on you. Oh, you know, yeah. like when I when I brought Senator Mike Gravel to the national convention, there were so many people there that were so rude to him for not agreeing with them. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, look, you know, it's okay that you don't agree with them, but this guy is like, you know, uh, you know, a, a former state, you know, you know, uh, U.S. senator, something we've never had in our party, yeah. you know. And he read the Pentagon Papers in the public record. He was a serious activist for freedom. He got more done in his life. You know, as far as like actual like freedom legislation and such, then Ron Paul probably will in his entire career. Mm-hmm. Not saying that there's anything wrong with Ron Paul. It's just, I mean, in order to do what Mike Gravel did, he had to do a lot of cheating. <laughs> you well, know, he I, had to do yeah, things. I was about to say Ron Paul had 360 um, sponsored 360 bills. Only six of it came out of committee. So you're right. I mean, Ron Paul hasn't done good, but that isn't because he hasn't tried. Yeah. Right. Oh no, I'm not putting down Ron Paul in that. Yeah. I mean, I just. But uh, it, overall, though, um, I just it, it, I'm glad to see that you're willing to check it out. You know, and tell me what you think about it later. Maybe we'll have it on, and we can have a discussion specifically about your perspective on the Venus Project after you've had a chance to look at it. Um, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of good information on the Venus Project itself. There, discussing what a resource-based economy is, um, and it'd be good to see. I mean, if you at some point would like to co-host one of my shows, you know, be one of the panelists or whatever, that would be great. Oh, that'd be um, cool. I, uh, I, I usually but, co-host a number of shows, but that'll be cool. Yeah. Excellent. Um, well, uh, actually, I'm just out of morbid curiosity. Were you a delegate to the last convention? No, uh-uh. No. Oh, okay. I, Did you have a favorite among the libertarian people who were running? or No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Not, not yeah. Barr, not any of them. Uh, oh, wow. No. Well, I definitely didn't care for Bob Barr. <laughs> no. Um, no. Christine Smith, I got to know her personally, and I thought she was really good. Um, she had a lot of enemies in the party, though. I, I was really surprised when I got there. But um, no, like but I anyway, said, libertarians. I mean, we we're pr- we're pretty much politically um, astute, but we're not politically savvy. And I think somebody had uh, mentioned that when he observed um, either on the internet or some other venue that uh, a bunch of libertarians getting together at the libertarian convention, it, it seemed as though there were a bunch of fifth graders just arguing about the most inane stuff. And I had right. even written um, an email and um, sent it to the guy who was in charge of our particular chapter because in, uh, in our chapter, uh, which I'm no longer a member of, they um, they had uh, disputes between they and the Libertarian uh, State Chapter. And right. I said, you know, why is everybody vying to be um, the Libertarian, the dominant Libertarian member? Because even if somebody actually succeeds from any chapter to become the National Libertarian Chairman, 
nobody has any power. Nobody, the Libertarian Party hasn't, hasn't made any type of real changes in decades since it was founded in the 70s. So why all this vying for power and nastiness back and forth? Eh, but still, they want to go ahead and, you know, and try to, you know... Oh, I remember exactly what you're talking about. There's a certain pretentiousness in the air. I mean, as a delegate, I saw this a lot. was like, you know, you get these people up there that are probably never going to do anything of any significance all their lives. And I remember, you know, Senator Mike Gravel was probably not the most libertarian option that was presented, but him on the ticket would have done a lot more overall than a lot of the other people that were there. And it was funny to me how the different people there that they reacted as if they were part of a major political party that was moving and shaking and doing all <laughs> yeah. these big things, when in reality we're generally laughed at. And, you know, Ron Paul accomplished a lot more by being a Republican, you know, exactly. than, you know, and I mean, I, it, honestly, Mike Gravel did a lot more as a Democrat, and they censored him almost immediately, you know, because... Mm -hmm. They were like way before Ron Paul, like, you know, as far as like getting him out of there, it was because they're like, uh-oh, this guy wants to impeach Bush and, you know, he wants to, he's talking bad about the war. We need to get this guy off the TV as fast as possible. You know, and they did the same thing to Dennis. Uh, Dennis kind of dropped out after that. Um, Dennis Kucinich is probably currently one of my favorite um, uh, politicians, and he uh, is like really good friends with Ron Paul. Well, his wife um, said that. He and that he and his he and Ron Paul would have made a uh, good pair of president and VP. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Regardless of whichever way that ticket went, I wouldn't have really minded at the time. I mean, I just now I find it really hard and frustrating. I mean, to to deal with this. I mean, just because one of the things that the the Venus Project also points out is just if you're going to have any kind of money system, any form of democracy, or uh, even just democratic republic or whatever, is just never going to function as long as you're allowed to buy politicians. And when you're in a system where, uh, you know, like, in fact, if you don't make friends with good corporations, you're never going to get elected. I mean, when I ran here in, uh, in Michigan, I ran against Candace Miller, who's like a total rubber stamp for the Bush administration. And mm -hmm. a friend of mine showed me the, the various donors that she got in the last election when she was running against me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she got, like, just so much money from Halliburton. And, yeah, they, they can't break the laws, of course, so what you would find is, like, there'd be all these individual Halliburton employees. They would give her 500, 300. You know, it's like, wow, 500. There's no way that's an accident. Nobody donates $500 to a congressional campaign. I mean, they did for Ron Paul, but we, it's only because of his presidential campaign that anybody even thought about it, you know. You know, just and it's it's just I was like totally stressed out about that. I mean, when I looked at it, it was like, wow, look at her voting record. She never voted against the war at all. Would never vote for any kind of withdrawal. You know, any timetable, nothing like that. And I was just like, you know, am I supposed to think it's coincidence that she did this? And that's one of the reasons why we feel a monetary system is really bad. I mean, honestly, when you when you look at it, no libertarian is ever going to say that it's okay. I and mean, it's like I always say to them, I'm like, okay, well, are you willing to take uh, are you willing to make uh, campaign contributions illegal? Well, no, obviously not. I mean, I, I should be allowed to do with my money whatever I want. I'm like, okay, well, as long as you say that, then you're never going to have any form of government that's not owned by the corporation. You know, well, like, can, well, what about I, you? We can, we can eliminate corporate personhood. I'm like, that won't matter either because then it will just be Bill Gates by himself, not Microsoft. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it will just be... You know, the, the individuals are still, you know, you're not going to take property from everybody, so that's going to work. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead and make your point. Oh, okay. well, the, the one way to, to counter that, and actually, in my opinion, is to um, effectively eliminate the, um, the effects of campaign contributions, a.k.a. bribes, is the fact that when lobbyists um, make 
uh, come to Washington, or when you have campaign slush funds and things like that. The reason that people contribute and the reason why uh, lobbyists are in Washington naturally is to have an adverse effect on the political system in their favor. But they can't do that if the government is really uh, limited to only, let's say, the powers given to the United States uh, government of only being there for national security and for making sure the judicial system is fair. If you eliminate the alphabet soups of all these agencies, they therefore, uh, Congress, have very, very few powers because without the agencies to be the extension of their power, the lobbyists have no reason to go to Washington because the lobbyists want power to be concentrated in their hands by using Congress as a conduit. If Congress um, does not have the, uh, the alphabet agencies, they, they don't have any power except to live according to the Constitution. So therefore, no lobbyists, no, uh, and the campaign funds will dry up because these people who ordinarily would uh, give the funds and have the lobbyists, they will see that there's nothing that they can get from Congress anymore because Congress has no power because uh, the agencies have, <laughs> are gone. They're, they've disappeared. Um, so that's that to me is you know what Ron Paul would have done had he gotten elected. He would have eliminated the uh, the agencies and in effect it's the same thing as with illegal immigration. The reason why illegal immigrants are over here is because there's an incentive for them to come across the border because now they can get on welfare. If you don't have welfare, you don't have the immigrants coming across the border because there's no place for them, and they know there's no place for them once they do cross the border. So you have to right. eliminate the incentives. Uh, you know, well, that's my solution to uh, you know to graft, major graft, and Halliburton. Eh, well, <laughs> well, we know what they've done over in Iraq. You know, no bid contracts, as you said, and Bush uh, making sure that he was his cronies got fed well off the hog. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, what you're talking about, you're talking about illuminating the agencies. Which agencies specifically do you think are the ones that are the Congress's power? Oh, the FDA, the FTC, FCC, the um, Health and Human Resources, every and, uh, every and all of them. Because whatever the government provides for the people, number one, technic- well, yeah, I would say most people think technically it's unconstitutional for these agencies to exist. If you take a look at the General Welfare Clause, though, these agencies are exist uh, do exist because of a of that loophole, so they are constitutional. But if you eliminate them, then there's a void. You don't have government and education, but you do want to have an educated populace. You don't have an FDA, but you do want the, the populace to be educated about drugs and bad medicines. So what happens? Whatever the government can provide, private enterprise can provide better and cheaper, and without the, uh, the agencies being in Washington, government is small. A small government doesn't attract the power, uh, the people who are attracted to power, and it doesn't attract uh, those kind of people. What it will attract um, to a, a larger degree will be administrators, people who just want to go there and think of Washington as a job as opposed to thinking of Washington as a power base. So if you eliminate all the, the alphabet soups, Therefore, there's a void, like I said, and that void has to be filled. The reason why... Well, I think, uh, well, I mean, I still think that, um, I mean, privatization has its own problems, too, though. I mean, it, uh, when, when you study the effects of privatization, you know, could they do it cheaper? Yeah, they sure could. Will they? 
I mean, it's, it, Halliburton is an example of privatization of feeding and clothing our troops. Obviously, that didn't go very well. I mean, well, obviously, you know, right. you know, the no-bid contract certainly helps, but, I mean, inevitably, these corporations, especially once they get near the top, they don't really care about anybody beyond what they have to in order to get, or, you know, to get by. I, I don't well, know. I just... Yeah. That's why you I'm need allergic to, to privatization at this point. Oh, I'm not for <laughs> privatization. Privatization is fascism. There's the um, interconnection between government and private industry. I'm, the libertarians, mm-hmm. at least some of them, I'm, me, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I don't want that. What I want is private enterprise competing against each other for the consumer dollar. So, therefore, human nature comes into, comes into play, and the greed um, tempered by a judicial system will make them more responsible than if they had a carte blanche uh, by virtue of their fascist ties with Washington. Well, I see where you're coming from there, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's like I said, it, you seem to have once again a unique perspective because all the libertarians I've ever dealt with, like if I even said what I just said about privatization, would start groaning, and then the ad hominems would start flying. They wouldn't even bother to, oh. <laughs> to have discourse about that. You know, it's like, how dare you think that it's bad for these corporations to be greedy? What's the matter with you? You know, I guess some, uh, but the problem is, though, is that, um, I think we were talking about, okay, so you're not for privatization, I get that. When you said that, you know, you say about com- you know, competing for the consumer dollar, it would be great in a world, though, it's just that the problem is now is that they're doing a really good job of controlling what's available to the consumer, controlling what the consumer can see, you know, uh, and I mean, it's like, for example, I, you know, participated as a good libertarian and being a consumer by refusing to do business with people like Walmart. Mm-hmm. And then I go to other department stores and then I'm starting to find out, wait a minute, now the industry standard is to do the same thing Walmart does. So you don't even have any choices unless you want to produce all your own goods yourself, which mm-hmm. obviously isn't really feasible for most people. It's just we've kind of come to the point where it seems like the our capitalist system is now to the point where it's rooted itself in, you know, into everything so badly um, you know, it, it it really comes down to a point where I, I just don't see it getting any better. I mean, they, they've done a really good job of managing to figure out how to root themselves in and be able to get the best possible profits, regardless of any kind of human consideration. Well, um, it's not going to get too much better because of Obama. He's just an extension of Bush. But it's not the failure of the capitalist system per se. What it is, it's the capitalist system, again, um, tying, um, being intertwined with government. It's the government, which is corrupt, along with business, which is corrupt. Now, you're not going to get rid of corruption. What happens is uh, the goal should be not to get um, complete eradication of corruption, because that's not going to happen. It's to limit it so that the, um, the corruption can somehow be tempered by, again, hopefully, the judicial system, which then takes advantage of the, uh, the, the populace uh, need for self-interest. Their self-interest will say, I don't care what the law is. Um, I, through jury nullification, will see to it that whoever is suing Walmart, regardless of the instructions the judge gives me, if what they're, if what the um, the plaintiff, um, or whatever the yeah whatever the plaintiff says is harmful is actually harmful, guess what? The plaintiff wins the lawsuit. But okay, in the way well, that we have it now, we don't have that because the judges are corrupt. Congress is corrupt. Uh, the president is corrupt. The president is about as communist as you can get. Congress is just turning its blind eye for, well, for decades. And I've told people, I gave them the analogy, you know, people, people believe that, at the worst, Congress, eh, to, uh, a number of congressmen might be corrupt, but they're not that corrupt. And I say, look, how many times can you 
be the captain of the uh, Titanic and keep crashing into the same iceberg. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, no, and, I, I can think of two congressmen, maybe three, that I, I think are okay. I can think of a single senator that is okay, Senator mm-hmm. Dorgan. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, well, he exposes stuff like misspending and things like that, and when he does it, He's really funny to watch, even though he's, he's not joking, he's not smiling, he's very direct and to the point, but his presentations make me laugh hysterically. Mm. You can see him on YouTube. Search Senator Dorgan. Dorgan, um, okay. Yeah, Dorgan, D-O-R-G-A-N. Um, he's the only senator that I, I could say that I, I care for at all. And then you've got Kucinich and Paul are the only two congressmen that I really think stick out, um, that are good enough. I mean, every now and then you get one that will chime in. It's like now... Now I like the, Bunning. I like the way he tears apart Bernanke, but even Ron Paul doesn't oh, do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the yeah, way that yeah, I well, like Yeah, Ron Paul stays very polite. Um, they, they had a guy recently, I think I know what you're talking about, because I saw him on YouTube, mm-hmm. and he was tearing Bernanke up, you know, just a new butt, and he was laughing at him. <laughs> he just mm-hmm. got to a point that he, he couldn't keep a straight face because Bernanke was saying stuff that didn't even make any sense. He's like, $3 trillion, trillion dollars, and you're telling me you don't know where it is. Like, mm, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. That, that might not have been Bunny. That might have been Gray. Gray was doing that to the inspector generals who didn't who didn't investigate uh, where trillions of dollars had gone uh, within the right. uh, Federal Reserve. <laughs> and he's a brand yeah. new congressman. He's, he's he's in Florida, I believe. Uh, that might be why he's able to get away with it. He's, he's brand new. He hasn't yeah. been you know down yet. It's actually yeah. there was like three or four people from Florida that I saw that were going off on the Federal Reserve. Um, oh, the other guy was from Florida. The one I was just quoting was too. Oh, Dorgan. But, um, uh-huh. Yeah, well, Dorgan, I don't know where Dorgan is from, actually. I think he's actually from somewhere on the, other, on the, uh, the, the West Coast. Hmm. But, you know, in any case, though, yeah, search for Dorgan and watch him on YouTube. He's, he's really funny. He, he exposed this thing about the supposed program that was actually headed up by, like, you know, these two kids. Oh. <laughs> like, these 20-year-old kids uh-huh. were supposed to be responsible for all those millions of dollars that were in some kind of federal program. And, like... Once again, the guy keeps a total straight face. It's almost like watching The Onion, you know, mm-hmm. because he's keeping a total straight face the whole time he's exposing this stuff, and you just end up laughing so yeah. hard you know, at the way that he exposes them and just makes them look so terrible. But you know, I watched C-SPAN, actually. The reason that I, I ran for Congress was that I realized I started shouting at C-SPAN the way that some people do at Monday Night Football. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what are you thinking? Yeah. You know, foul on the play, fumble. You know, just yeah. basic. Yeah how I ended up dealing with it, but I'm probably going to do it again, although I have no idea how I'm going to fit my new platform in. It looks like I may have to become a Democrat. I'll have to hold my nose. Um, but <laughs> but uh, in any case, though, um, we're down to now like the last like seven minutes. It's been very great talking to you. I hope that you will investigate this stuff. You know, Investigate Zeitgeist Addendum. The Zeitgeist Orientation Guide would probably give you a lot more direct to the point information. Is that a documentary uh, or is that actually uh, a PDF? You would you could watch it. I would. Oh, okay. prefer, I would you, you can get it on PDF if you want to read it. But um, there's an orientation guide that's in PDF. But uh, I would suggest that you watch it. He lays it out really good, and he gives good illustrations. It's a sl- the orientation presentation is presented kind of like a slideshow, uh-huh. um, but it, it really cuts to the to the meat and potatoes of the Venus Project and what the Zeitgeist movement is all about. Um, and well, uh, you know, the, after- I'm enjoying the slides on the page as they're. Mm-hmm. Um, changing right before me, the futuristic uh, model. <laughs> yes. Well, he's, he was an industrial designer. He actually designed a lot of things, um, but he didn't care about money, so he ended up not taking out any patents on the stuff, so when somebody else would end up grabbing it. Um, 
a lot of the things that are in Star Trek actually were came from conversations he had with people that were writing Star Trek episodes, like the holodeck, yeah. the concept that he envisioned. Uh, there was a couple of other things like transporters and stuff. I wouldn't say necessarily came directly from him, but he ended up like you know, in, you know, influencing those decisions. If you look at a lot of his models and stuff, they they come from that. I mean, he he gets really deep into what the future is all about. But he's also a social engineer. You know, don't let yourself don't lose yourself entirely in his futuristic models. Those are just part of what he's about. Mm-hmm. But um, it also has to do with like the way he builds cities. If right. you look at his city designs, they're so amazing and they're so efficient and they're so much. They just make a lot of sense. I mean, we were talking about that earlier in this episode. I don't know when you joined us, but uh, we read an article that was uh, like part of the part of the book that was entirely about the cities and the way I that they're designed. That. Mm-hmm. You know, and just like for example, you design it in a circle. You make it so that you never have to, you know, really travel very far to get to critical things because they're just in the next, essentially the equivalent of the next street over. Yeah. You know, you build your city in belts. So there's an agricultural belt. There's a, you know, a shopping belt, which is essentially just acquisition of resources since there is no money. Um, you know, th- there's a educational belt, a recreational belt, which just basically amounts to, well, I just go to this next belt, and now I'm in the recreational area. I'll go over here or I'll go over there you know, within the recreational area. Well, now I'm going to go get something to eat, so I guess I'll head over to the agricultural belt, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and in these ways of designing things make a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, about scarcity, eliminating it, making it so there's enough energy for everybody. It makes it so much easier when you arrange things better. Um, the ideas that this guy comes up with to solve problems, that's actually his big thing, is that politicians should be at the forefront of technology. Politicians should be at the forefront of problem-solving, and instead, politicians are generally at the forefront of bureaucracy and accepting as many bribes as they possibly can. And it's like those value systems are the reason why we feel anyway that people will look at human nature and say that you can't change it. You know, we feel that that system you change a lot if you could really have a strong control of the environment and if the environment was designed intelligently rather than being designed essentially haphazardly in whatever's most profitable. And you and I both know that profit is very rarely intelligent. You, the, the smart thing is very rarely profitable. It's much better to push inefficient systems, you know, that, you know, overall, you know, for, for the sake of, you know, like, you know bulky, bulk profit. I mean, the, the oil industry is a perfect example of that. You know, the energy industry overall is another good example. But it was great talking to you. What's your name? I'm Joe. Oh, hey, Joe. I'm Joe. Neil. Uh, hey. And... Uh, Make sure that you uh, check out that information. Friend, you know, favorite my show. You know, send me a message. Maybe if you want to exchange emails or whatever, and well, we can I, have further I conversations. I'll try. I won't do that because I'm a political activist. And what I've said on my shows, for example, when cops got killed, and I said good because cops are not the first line of defense for the people. Mm-hmm. They're usually the major cause of aggravation for the people and other mm-hmm. views that I've had. I, I firmly believe we're heading down very quickly towards a communist state, and um, nobody, well, very few people anyway, uh, have my email or know who, where I'm, you know, who I am or anything like that. Because well, you can just you can just message me via Blog Talk then. Yeah, you've got I a mean, Blog I can, Talk I can account. You can you. exchange messages that way. That'll be fine. Yeah. Um, I understand where you're coming from. I went through that same phase. I'm kind of to the point now where I'm like, you know, I've clicked on so many websites. <laughs> There's no way I'm not on the terrorist watch list by now. Um, yeah, well, especially since you ran for Congress, yeah. Yeah, hey, I sure. want to avoid being on a terrorist watch list because what they're doing now is uh, the tipping point which Naomi Wolf has talked about for the past couple of years. And uh, It's funny. Naomi Wolf endorsed Obama. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I Holy know, yeah. Jesus. 
Yeah, I, I would have thought for sure she would have been for Ron Paul, but oh. Oh, well, God. she did communicate with us, because I, I was part of the Revolution March. Actually, I helped organize it, and we were talking to her. I'm actually the person who got her to come and speak and everything, and I play her documentary sometime, and I know what you're talking about. It was, it was very much a, what, Obama? Yeah, <laughs> they must have gotten to her. They had to threaten her family. Cause well, I don't no know. Way. No, I